Are there nerds here tonight? Nerds! You are a part of the lucky 10,000 with your hosts, Evan. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. And Carissa. Not hot in spite of being a geek, but because of it. Being a nerd, it's not about what you love. It's about how you love it. Hey guys, this is Evan. Hey, I'm Carissa. And we are the Lucky 10,000, the show that wants to get you luckier than a naked leprechaun on a bed of four-leaf clovers with a horseshoe necklace. <laughs> That's pretty lucky. Yes, that is extremely lucky. Um, so before we get into the main topic of today's episode, I want to give a shout-out. Yeah. Uh, we received an unsolicited email, which are always the best kind to receive. Totally. From the Sons of the Renaissance podcast who have given us a shout out and they really enjoyed our internet jargon episode. So <laughs> to return the favor. Absolutely. Check them out. Um, they had a really good little riff about the expendables. Well, there you go. On their recent ones. So, so thanks sons of the Renaissance and we will be checking you out as well. Thank you guys. And uh, we are dedicated to talking about things that we're passionate about. We've kind of considered this podcast, a very geek centric podcast because you can geek out about anything uh, and we've really covered some pretty standard geek territory. Uh, but today we're going to step outside that a little because there are a lot of geeks out there that obsess about certain aspects of pop culture. But there's a very specific world of geekdom that specifically obsesses about comedy. Yeah, I'm one of those. You could almost call them comedy groupies. Could you? Yeah, you probably could. Oh, they're out there. I haven't met any of them, unfortunately, but they're out there. <laughs> But um, Chris and I are both uh, fans of stand-up comedy, obviously, and we're also fans of improv. I am in an improv group. I was in two at one point. So we both have uh, a considerable amount of knowledge about it. Now, Carissa actually, I think, knows more about stand-up comics specifically than I do, because I definitely have my favorites, but I don't uh, follow a lot of stand-ups religiously. But Carissa tends to be more of an expert on stand-up comics. She kind of has a, a lot of passion for following certain people, and I, you know, I like the people that I like. So we're going to talk about that, and then we can talk about improv, and I can give a little, even some inside information per se, on improv. So let's get started, Carissa. Do you have a list of your top comedians or something like that? The list of my top comedians would probably take half of this episode <laughs> <laughs> because I do really love stand-up comedy. I find sure. it a singular form of perfect entertainment. Right. And because it takes so many different, I don't know, ways of expression that Anytime I want to listen to, you know, like, super funny stuff about food, I have favorite comics for that. Or Jim Gaffigan. Release, <laughs> yeah, or John Panette, who has yeah. sadly passed away now. But so it's kind of almost like, what's your favorite movie? Well, it depends on what genre you're talking about or what mood I'm in. So that's really hard to say. Of course, the top 10 lists for most people are going to be kind of largely the same. So there's going to be, you know, your Louis C.K., Patton Oswalt, right. Lewis Black, like those are the ones that everybody knows and then kind of have a very universal appeal. And I love them, of course. Obviously. Well, they, they are sort of the top tier right yeah. now. And those are the guys that I know and I'm very familiar with. I'm a huge fan of Louis and Patton Oswalt. I would have to say if I had to name a favorite comedian of all time, it would probably be Chappelle. 
Um, Chappelle is amazing. And that's not because of his show. <laughs> because no, no, I've his seen him do stand up and it's amazing. Yeah, he's he's truly gifted and he has been called the best comedian of all time by people who aren't bad comedians. Like Right. He's been credited with that and And that's another are... thing we can get into too is the comedians who are not necessarily respected by other comedians and whether we what our opinion on them is. So you're talking about like the Dane Cooks of the, the Dane world? Cooks, the Carrot Tops, <laughs> the Gallagher's, you know, the people like that. But let's just so so how how did you want to start this off? Because so so the first half, you know, probably won't be exactly half, but the first section will be devoted solely to stand up comedy. Okay, cool. Uh, well, you actually mentioned him. Let's let's start with Gallagher. Okay. Gallagher is probably how I got into stand up comedy as a as a spectator. Like I'm personally not funny, so. <laughs> Don't be hard I, on yourself. You can be I'm very not. Funny. I'm not funny. I'm witty and That's the same sometimes thing, kind of. mm, mm, eh, it is a little different. If you say funny. something witty that provokes a physical involuntary reaction called laughter, it could be defined as funny. That's true. But I don't do comedy. Like I couldn't right. write a set and stand up in front uh, of a crowd right, right. and my timing just would be weird. So I'm not a funny person, but I have an incredibly good, I think, sense of humor. I find a lot of stuff funny. Right. So you are I'm a able... fantastic audience member. Thanks. I know personally. Uh, I actually, we went to a stand-up comedy show here for Greg Barrett not too long ago mm -hmm. when he came through town. Uh, he's one of my f favorites of my like hundred favorites, I guess. Uh, and I was in the front row off the stage right with a couple of my friends and when i go to a comedy show i laugh and i laugh loud right and i get really engaged and uh, zeke calls me the perfect comedy audience member because you i don't are because i don't, you don't titter it doesn't, it doesn't get out of control either you know because right, is... and i don't heckle right i don't you know hide behind my hand i laugh and i laugh loud and i engage with the comedian which apparently comedians really like because if you just sit there quietly they have no idea if you like their shit or not right <laughs> and it ruins the flow of the show so I try to get involved to have that feedback to encourage the comedian to be funny, and it tends sure. to work. But I can't do that. Like, I can't do what they do. Not because I'm afraid. I've been in theater. I have no problem standing up in front of people and doing things. But I don't have anything particularly funny to say, or even if I do, I don't have the funny way to say it. Right. So the people who are able to take whatever observation, if they're observational comics or you know, a premise, if they're like an Anthony Jeselnik one-off kind of new age Don Rickles sort of comedian who just do jokes, who just tell right. jokes that have no, they're not true. They're not stories. They're not personal observations. They're just jokes. I can't do any of that right. and make it funny. I mean, I can tell you about my day, but I can't find the one bit that makes it accessible and hilarious to everyone that's listening to me talk about my day. Right. So I love it when other people can do that. And I find it to be an art form that is underrated, even though almost everyone likes it. Right. It's not seen by a lot of people, I think anyway, as a serious 
really positive, good quality art form. It's getting better because I have talked to people in the artistic community that I think 10 years ago, you talked to people in the world of, say, theater or film who yeah. would have looked at stand-up comedy as a lower tier form of not even art. Yeah. But I think with the emergence of people like Louis C.K., um, with the emergence of people like go back into the 70s and look at somebody like Steve Martin, who at the beginning of his career in stand up, you could just look at and say, oh, what a goofy, silly. I don't get. But there was such a, a another level to it that you didn't get at first viewing. Um, and now you see what a what a, a brilliant man he is just in general. Um, yeah. I think people like him and Robin Williams, obviously, and Pryor, all those guys sort of. Carlin, all those guys sort of changed the the thought process about what stand up was. And I think they helped create a dialogue about it that now people do realize, oh, it is an art form and you have to be a very skilled person to do it. Um, like, a lot of I don't people... know. I don't know about that because you say those things and I think, yeah, because those guys were, you know, Pryor and Robin Williams and Carlin, they were big when I was youngish, when I was coming into listening to stand-up comedy or right. whatever those were the albums that i had those were the people that i would go see if and i saw bill cosby in concert right i don't know how like excited i should be about that now but yeah no seriously at the time, <laughs> I was say, you that got, was I mean, great if you talk about the history of stand-up you have to talk about cosby at some point but now i kind of don't want to yeah <laughs> want to give him any support but at least in terms of his place in the oh, it's comedy world, you can't deny that at all, no, ever. And But they weren't the first at all. Like, go back further. Bob Hope, there are still, to this day, I'm sure that there are people young enough to not know who Bob Hope was. Right. Let alone be able to access any of his comedy in their memories. Like, they just don't even know that he was a thing. But, like... And he wasn't by far the first stand-up comedian. No. But to this day, people are like, well, you're no Bob Hope. Right. But at the same time, I think what those guys did, the guys we just mentioned, is change it into an art form or change the perception of it as an art form instead of just a guy telling jokes. I think there were a time when people could admit, yeah, stand-up comedians are funny. But I think it's taken a while for people to look at it as an art form. And I seriously do. And I think it's a shame that more people don't. Well, because it looks so stripped down. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that a true, you know, comedian's comedian is a man or woman standing on a bare stage with a microphone making people laugh. And people, you know, the true genius of any great artist is that they make something difficult look so easy. Yes. A great magician makes his magic tricks that he's that he's worked for years on hours a day look so simple that anybody could do it and almost right. no one can. And I think that's the same thing with a really great comedian. So it doesn't look like art because you don't see the work that went into it. Yeah. And like I've tried not to get up and do stand-up comedy that I know is beyond me. I have tried to write jokes. Mm -hmm. Like just write them down. Like, mm -hmm. Come up with a premise and write down a joke. No, just not at all. And I'm not dumb and I'm not bad at writing and I understand the concept of story crafting. But no, my shit is not funny. It's hard, hard work. And there is a, not just a sense of humor. Like you and I and most people that I know have some varying degrees of a sense of humor. When something right. is funny, we'll sense it. But the reverse of that is creating that right. humor. Like I have a sense of what a good orchestra would sound like, but I can't write that music. 
Right. I can't well, you know, conduct that symphony. You know what else I think has contributed to looking at stand-up comedy as an art form is actually one of the more negative things that has happened to stand-up comedy in the last 10 years, YouTube. Because and a lot of comedians now are, are starting to really clamp down on people bringing any sort of recording devices into clubs because what people didn't think about, like when, when you saw a George Carlin special in the 80s, what you didn't see was the amount of times he went to clubs and bombed yes. testing out this material because people didn't realize what kind of – the general public, I don't think – didn't realize what kind of process there was to creating right. one hour of stand-up comedy. But now people are taking cell phones into clubs to record that local comedian when the big guy comes in to test out some material and you see it not working. So even though that is actually a disservice to stand-up comedy because people see those videos and don't understand what the process is and go, oh, I guess Chris Rock's just not funny anymore. Right. When they don't realize that he's still just as funny as ever, but he doesn't know what material works and what doesn't until he's done those hours testing it out in a club. But a lot of comedians are really clamping down on that because it has started to hurt them because of that yeah. attitude. People see somebody like Seinfeld going into a club and testing out a new material, and it's not getting laughs, and they're going, oh, he must suck now. And you're just like, well, no, he hasn't tested the material yet. Yeah, because it's not like you, you can't just write it down and go, oh, that's funny to me, and then everyone is going to universally find it as funny as you did the exact way that you wrote it down. Exactly. So, so I think there is that's an audience when, response give and take that has to be tried. Absolutely. And so I think that's made people, the smarter people, realize that, oh, this is a process. And like I think that one of the things hours doing it. One of the things that helped me understand that best was that I saw a comedian come to town, watched their they were on tour doing, you know, the improvs. So I went to the improv, I watched them do their set, it was hilarious. They came out with a CD of that tour. Later, I got that because that's what I do. And the set was on the CD, but it was right. slightly different than it was yes. when he performed it in front of me and live. The, the great thing about really true veteran you know, stand-up comics is when we say different, we're talking a, a word that might seem to have nothing to do with the final payoff of the joke is different. Yeah. That's because they figured out that the delivery can be helped by doing this thing or doing that thing. And sometimes to an audience member, it seems so minuscule. But to them, it, it, and that's what we mean. It's it's like you know somebody putting a great painting together and realizing that I'm using the wrong color, or I'm using the wrong medium, or I'm right. you know, and and they have to change what they're doing, or somebody writing a play and realizing halfway through that uh, one of the characters doesn't have enough depth or something like that, and having to go back and start over. Yep. When you see the finished product, like if you see if you see somebody. If you see the finished product of a novel in a bookstore, you kind of intrinsically know a lot of work went into this. You see one hour of a stand-up special, you think, oh, it's one hour of, a, of somebody telling a bunch of jokes. But Yeah, five you, minutes of stand-up takes It, it can take forever. a while. Yeah. Well, and of course, because you can't, um, you can't underestimate how quickly you say stuff out loud. Right. So you'll write down a joke and it'll take you, you know, even if it's a, you know, the joke, you've got it in your head, you write it down and you're like, oh, that'll be 45 seconds of my five minutes. I'm right. one fifth of the way done. And it's 20 seconds long. Oh my God. Right. Like there's just no way to tell. And if you write in the time for pause for laughter, 
and there's no laughter there. It's just absurd how long that can take. One of the most interesting things I ever heard about that uh, came actually from Jeff Foxworthy. And I don't know what your opinion of him is. I remember thinking uh, that he was really funny the first time I heard him. I don't have anything against the Southern comedy guys because I do think they're all comedians. Mm -hmm. My favorite out of that group is Ron White. Oh, absolutely. I've never had anything against Jeff Foxworthy because everyone just associates him with the, you know, you're a redneck if. Well, he's got hours of material. Oh, so much. So much material. But his first appearance on The Tonight Show, I saw an interview with him about it, and it was really fascinating. It gets you inside the mind of a comic because when they told him, you got five minutes, they were not fucking around. They went, you've got five minutes. At 4.59 in one second, you better be done. Yep. And this is The Tonight Show. So he went on and he was talking about how his first joke killed way more than he thought it would. So he had to hold for a laugh a lot longer than he thought he was going to. Mm -hmm. And now, as great as that is, he's going, oh, shit, this is going to make me go over my five minutes. So while he's waiting for that laugh to die down, his mind is automatically going to, okay, what can I cut? What can I shorten? What can I move (laughs) from here to there? And, you know, you don't think about that. You just think, oh, great, the guy got a laugh. Good for him. But there's so much more that goes into it. And so he created this beautiful streamlined five minutes and then had to change it on the fly Yep. because one of them worked really well. Yeah. So uh, I actually you. somebody I, I watched a comedian who was an opener for somebody else. And, you know, your openers have 10 minutes and then 15 minutes or whatever if there's a second opener. Right. And if you're at an improv club, typically the time is not going to be perfect. Like you can go off on eight or sure. 12. It's not that big a deal. Uh, But one guy, he was the first of two openers. He didn't have all that much time. We were the late show. We were already starting a little late. So they were kind of trying to just get everybody going because the later you go, the drunker the audience gets and the harder they are to manage. Right. So the first guy, he told a joke and that happened to him and it it hit really hard. And he was like, okay, it's, yes, it's funny. Shut the fuck up. I got shit to do. And so, I mean, which didn't help. Like that made it much right. funnier to everybody in the right. audience. And so we just kept laughing because we couldn't stop at that point. Right. And that's the thing. And and so let's go back to to what you said. The the and you know, this might hurt your comedy cred a little bit, but you said the first person that got you interested in stand up was Gallagher. Now we are from the same generation. So yeah. I remember when he had like five Comedy Central specials on rotation that just every time you turned on Comedy Central or HBO at one point, it was Gallagher. Well, I remember, oh God, this is going to sound make me sound like a hipster and I don't want it to, <laughs> but uh, like I remember Gallagher from before there was a Comedy Central. Right. Like there wasn't even Ha, yet, right. which was the precursor to Comedy Central. Well, how did you see him then? Did somebody have a- He came uh... in concert. My parents took me. Oh. I was, I don't know, five or something. And he came- to town. Which honestly is kind of the perfect age to see Gallagher. Oh, totally. Like, I sadly, we didn't get to sit in the splash zone of the watermelon, right. but I got to see it. And the everybody who knows Gallagher at all knows him for his the big sledgehammer just breaking stuff on stage. Right. But he had an hour and 10 minutes or so of stage comedy prior to that. Like, that's right. the end of his show. It is not the whole show. Right. The whole show was stupendous. It's funny. It was smart. It was, like, about grammar and spelling. And he 
did it in a way that was really accessible to all ages. You know, the dirty jokes were subtle, so they hit the, the adults. Yeah, he was never he was never outwardly filthy. No, but I've watched a lot of his earlier stuff since I've been an adult and caught a bunch of the shit that I missed when I was a yeah. kid. That was great writing. Like, it was really very well crafted. Well, and people give Gallagher a lot of shit, but he is still listed as, you know, when Comedy Central did their top 100 comedians voted on by comedians he was on the list now he was at the bottom of the list but that's still for a comedian for yeah. a group of comedians to say he deserves to be in the top 100 is because there were a lot more than 100 comedians uh, yeah it's pretty <laughs> special now what has happened to gallagher over the years is kind of sad he has whoever the real gallagher is right now anyway <laughs> has become just kind of an angry, bitter, weird guy. And his material has gotten more and more, <sighs> I would say, less comedy, more just sort of angry ranting. Well, and, and I then mean, he smashes fruit. <laughs> as people age and, you know, it's still the entertainment industry. There are very few people who can make it past. Well, and also there's that whole age. thing about him giving his act to his brother. And who knows if his brother is even as sharp as he was originally yeah and i haven't seen that well the, so. the he's become most notorious in the past few years for walking out of mark maron's podcast oh right <laughs> because mark maron was just asking him about some of his material and whether he would consider it racist because he's had some criticisms lodged at him lobbed at him for it being racist and instead of defending his material or position he got mad and stormed out yeah, acting childishly is not really a good way to no, it doesn't help. remain up. Okay, so yeah, my first was Gallagher. Shortly after that was Bill Cosby that I saw live. I remember I had uh, blank tape copies of himself and listened to it all the time. The first comedy I got into on my own, which was, I was still young, seven or eight, too young to get into this on my own. Right. Uh, I shouldn't have had access to this really, <laughs> but my cousin had uh, just a cassette, like a recorded cassette of Eddie Murphy's Raw Yeah, that I found at my grandparents' house and stole. And it was the funniest shit I had oh, yeah. ever heard in my very young life. And like my parents raised me right. They raised me on com like Monty Python comedy, right. Gallagher comedy, Bill Cosby comedy, Carlin comedy. Like I grew up on fun right. and I knew funny, even young. I knew funny. <laughs> very short, brief aside. One night when I was kind of young, eight maybe nine years old. My dad was out of town on business. My mom and I were up watching Night Court. Okay. I was too young to get this joke, but on Night Court, they had these two people come in who were arrested for public indecency at a Burger uh -huh. King. John Larroquette's character said she gave a new definition to the term hold the pickle. <laughs> I shouldn't have gotten that joke. I couldn't stop laughing. So my mom was like, why do you understand that joke? <laughs> <laughs> it's because they raised me to recognize a joke. Like, right. I, I had a sense of humor developed early, thanks to them. So I was able to get jokes I shouldn't get because right. I could recognize the structure of the joke and be right. able to deconstruct the meaning of that joke. So Eddie Murphy's Raw was it was I listened to it. You know me. I will obsess about something. Oh, yeah. I listened to it all day for months. Like it was I, I was completely obsessed with that with that show. 
and I had it memorized. I still do, in fact. I heard it the other day. I just put it on while I was walking around the grocery store, right. and I still know every word. Oh, sure. Like, I, it I, is still amazing. There was a time where I could tell you, uh, not anymore, but and that's not because of current news. It's just because I haven't sat down to listen to it. But I had it on such heavy rotation. I could tell you every word of uh, himself at one point. Yeah. Yes. Um, I was going in for minor surgery one time and I had my and just to comfort myself, I had my Walkman and I listened to that to comfort myself, which is, again, why it's so sad what has happened. (laughs) But yeah. So, I mean, we all like, yeah, especially in our generation when we were lucky enough to be around when Comedy Central started and when we did have at least friends who had HBO and they started showing unedited stand-up specials. It was a pretty great time for... The 80s in general was a great time for comedy. But yeah, there was that big comedy explosion in the 80s, which some people think was actually a disservice to stand-up comedy. And a lot of comedians nowadays will sort of admit that it was when comedy became so popular. Clubs were sprouting up everywhere. And it was positive in the way that comedians could make money. That was when people started realizing, oh, I can do this for a living. The problem was a lot of comedians could make money just because all these clubs needed comedians. So a lot of people that weren't particularly great stand-ups now were all of a sudden getting known. Or it became so easy that when it got hard again, a lot of talented comics kind of fell by the wayside. Right. So, But the, but for us, the 80s was a great time because comedians were everywhere. Yeah, yes. Like every and- time you turned around, there were comics, uh, some comic special on. And, you know... That's what the impetus was to have a whole channel devoted to nothing but comedy because there was enough of it. Yes. Like before Comedy Central was Comedy Central, it was ha. Right. And that lasted for, what, 13 months or something? Yeah, not that long. But all it was. Because that's a shitty name for a station. (laughs) It was a really bad name for a station. But all it was all day was just, you know, three minute clips of every comedian's improv set ever. Right. So it was just one comedian against another, against a brick backdrop with a microphone. Right. And just constantly, just like the radio for stand-up comedy. Right. It was just bit, 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 bit all day. And so you could just watch every conceivable comedian all day. And then every once in a while, they'd have, you know, Paula Poundstone's hour-long special. Right. Or whatever. Or back when Rosie O'Donnell was a stand-up comedian. Right. Rosie O'Donnell's 45-minute special. Who remembers those fucking days? Me. Um, those were really good times if you liked comedy. I think people our age, you know, in their mid-30s to mid-40s who were growing up with cable got a really good entry into what stand-up comedy could be and would eventually kind of morph into. Absolutely. And now, you know, uh, for the past few years at least, you've had – if you have satellite radio, you've had a bunch of stations dedicated. So much comedy is still out there. You can have a station dedicated solely to clean comics and then a station dedicated solely to dirty comics. Well, and Pandora, which has been around now for yeah. fucking ever, has all of those channels as well. Yeah. So you can just turn on a rotation of you know bits from every comedy album ever released, basically, in whatever kind you want. Do you want 2000s comedy? Do you want 1980s comedy? We've got all of that. Have a listen. Right. Uh, me, I want all of that comedy. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm a little pickier. I'm going to be honest. I tend to be picky if I'm 
picking. Like, hey, right. today I would like to listen to some comedy. I have right. some go-tos, but like I'm on Spotify, I have a playlist of stand-up comedy. It's my stand-up comedy playlist. Right. It Who's is every stand-up comedy album that Spotify has of the people that I would put on an album. Like there are some that I left off. Who's typically on your playlist? Who Oh, there's there's no typical. This is 226 hours. Oh wow. Which is nine and a half days, give or take, right. of stand-up comedy. Okay. Could you So there's no typical. It's basically everyone who has ever made me even giggle i put them on this list i will say uh and maybe this is how we can get into talking about the people that we both kind of share a passion for and then you can get into maybe some of your favorite uh lesser known comics okay um i have a uh, rhapsody account and uh you know it i haven't really done a great job of creating playlists i just kind of am like what do i feel like listening to i will search for it for 10 minutes and then find it and listen to it right but um my go-to's of the of the albums, the full albums that they typically have on Rhapsody, um, I've listened to uh, most of Patton Oswalt's stuff because they've got three of his CDs on there quite a few times. Um, and he still makes me at least smile, even though I've heard it many, 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 many times. Oh, yeah. Patton Oswalt's great. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, Louis, of course. Um, I'll tell you who I really enjoy listening to. Not as much of his stand-up as just him. Uh, because we talk about being witty and how you define that as being funny. Well, I've talked, brought up clips or something that I've heard uh, over the past couple episodes on Opie and Anthony. Now, um, I honestly didn't know who Opie and Anthony were a year ago. Um, okay. Jason Underwood was the one that told me about them, and I started finding YouTube clips. I would have to say, if you ask me who I think the best off-the-cuff person in the business right now is, it has to be Jim Norton. Jim Norton is very good. His stand-up is actually His stand-up is funny. good. It is good. I mean, I'm not saying it is not. I saw, I think it was, what, American Degenerate uh, last year. But just for sheer conversational humor, he's fantastic. Yeah. I have not heard anyone that can outdo him yet. There are obviously some great funny people that they have on that show all the time. I mean, you know, rest his soul, Patrice O'Neill was on there a ton and he's a funny, funny dude. But Patrice O'Neill was one of those guys that, like, if he wasn't in the mood, you weren't getting shit out of him. Jim Norton is on all the time on that yeah. show. And there's rarely 10 minutes to the pass if they're not talking about something serious where he doesn't say something that is just gut-bustingly funny. Yeah. So, yeah, those people I really, really enjoy listening to. Obviously, you know, still Chappelle. Then there are the classic sort of our modern version of the jokey comics. People like, uh, again, Rest of Soul, Mitch Hedberg, um, Stephen Wright. Yes. Is, is oh, still God. Pretty, pretty brilliant. And those I guys. I feel like he is so underrated for how much everybody knows who Stephen Wright is. It's true because he's the guy that, you know, my, our our good friend James Sibley, who is a successful stand-up comedian, just mm -hmm. came out with his first DVD, actually, called Family good. Funny. Um, in fact, you could probably find him on your Pandora or Spotify at this point um, because he's really becoming known. He just hosted, did a fill-in host gig for Bob and Tom. Um, so he's he's kind of exploding a little bit. But, you know, when when he was in town, I asked him who his favorite comedian was of all time. And without batting an eye, it was Stephen Wright. But Stephen Wright is not the guy that most people outside the comedian's circle will say is their favorite comic. In yeah. fact, a lot of people now probably have forgotten who he was or is. Which is, it, that's, if it's that's true, that's a travesty. Yeah, it's a genuine crime. 
because not only is he brilliantly funny, but being the joke type comedians that he and Hedberg were, it always blows my mind that those guys did more than an hour a decade because there wasn't a whole lot of because you a lot of, like if I were a professional stand up comic, I've done stand up a couple of times, but if I were a professional, I would call myself the story guy. Because I love telling a story. And with a story, you know, there's a little bit of padding that you can do. There's a little bit of uh, drawing out the clock if you want and just sprinkling in some humor here or there. And then having the big, you know, punchline to the joke. These guys were telling jokes. I mean, how many jokes in a minute would these guys be able to rattle off? Yeah. And it wasn't like, hey, a guy walks into a bar. It was this funny, you know, brilliant stuff. And, oh, my God, they were able to get so much into an hour. And they well, kept coming out with specials. Like, people who tell jokes, jokesters, uh, they're very rare because mm -hmm. jokes are hard. Yeah. Because they're old. The right. joke is passe. We have, we're in this, like, postmodern, ironic, sort of pseudo-sentimental slash cynical mindset socially so jokes are old we all right. know what a joke is it's set up punchline right and generally you know what the punchline is going to be given the setup because that's a joke so jokesters are hard to come by because writing good jokes is hard right so when you get somebody like and i always go back to don rickles well as i was one about to say earliest. don rickles is still like if you've seen him even recently yeah he's he's still doing sharp. it and he's still yep. doing it well and it's amazing and he's definitely one of the best joke crafters and there's a generational thing to it too because i go back and watch bob hope and not to spit on the history of comedy or anything he's never struck me as all that funny now i'm not he saying he wasn't me laugh. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve a place in the history of comedy because he was so influential, but he was such a generational thing. It's like Bob Hope and Bob Newhart right. are the two comics that I look at and go, those those are comic. Those are true bona fide comics yes. that never make me laugh. Bob Bob Newhart would make me laugh, <clears throat> mainly because of his stutter. Yeah, the delivery was part of it, but that's always to me more laughing at than with. Right. And I'm I'm a bigger fan of laughing with than at. True, true. But I mean, his so, shows too. Uh, I I was a huge Newhart fan of the show when I was younger, mm -hmm. and just loved him. My dad is a huge Newhart fan too, and that's really unusual if you know my dad. <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> seem like the kind of guy that's gonna sit down and tell you about Bob Newhart. But there was just something so. I mean, the, Bob Newhart to me perfectly fit the rule of comedy in that you can't be you can't be above your audience. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's so rare that a comedian works who – that's why most comedians are not the best-looking people in the world. Yeah. <laughs> that's why most comedians seem real working class because to a certain extent, you have to be laughing at them a little. It's just that they're in on the joke. I mean there is some at least small measure of self-deprecation in the act of stand-up comedy itself. Like Donald Trump, other than the fact that he has no real sense of humor, would make the worst stand-up comic because yeah. he cannot lower himself to your level. He, he's not funny on purpose. No. Like you will always be laughing at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is not in on the joke. No. There's no, that great really uh, episode of South Park. Did you see the one where uh, uh, Jimmy, the, the crippled kid Jimmy, came up with the best joke in the world? I've seen Jimmy tell a lot of jokes, so probably I missed this episode. 
Uh, well, he if and Cartman, that should ring a bell as to the specific episode. <laughs> he and Cartman were hanging out, believe believe it or not, and he made a joke about fish sticks, and it turned out to be the funniest joke ever. Like it was like, "Do you like fish sticks? What are you, a gay fish?" And it turned out, it turned into like everybody thought this was the best joke ever written, except for Kanye West, who every time somebody <laughs> told him the joke, he thought they were accusing him of being a gay fish, and he got. I mad. do remember this. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, maybe and, I may not have seen the whole episode, but I remember the Kanye thing about being a gay fish. Yeah, and that episode perfectly exemplifies why there are certain people who will never be able to be to excel in the world of comedy because they can't even get the joke because they're too above everything else. You have to be able to break yourself down a little bit. And if you can't, don't even do it. Don't even yeah. attempt it because you know, even somebody like Eddie Murphy, who at his peak was this good looking, energetic, young, fit guy. He had to be able to laugh at himself. Absolutely. Because nobody wants to sit there and watch somebody who is telling you how great they are. Yeah. The the key to most successful comedy, and there might be some people who can go outside that and, and, and make it work, and if they do, they're brilliant. But who are, the, who are the best comedians we were just talking about? Chappelle, Louis C.K., Patton Oswalt. They are people that, yes, they have some, a lot of jokes outwardly uh, directed at other people, but then they have a lot of their best material that is making fun of themselves. Or at least based in something that is an admission of imperfection. Yes, and identifiable, too. Yeah. So, like, we talk about let's – get, let's get comedy nerdy a little bit. Sure. Because we talk about people like Don Rickles yep. who are joke tellers. Yes. We and lost – The brilliant thing about Don Rickles, though, is because he is the closest you can get to a truly mean-spirited comic – but it's because he is so good at making everybody the butt of the joke and you never feel like it's it's meant with any true ardor or anger. Eh. I don't think it is. I think the only reason Don Rickles works the way he does is because when he insults people, you know he's insult he's gonna insult everybody. Like no one is is safe. So they're automatically there is sort of a shared uh, experience where and well, yes, you don't feel like there's any venom true. behind it. That's absolutely true. Like there's I don't know if you're familiar with the British tradition of the Christmas cracker. I don't think so. OK, it's basically just like a little cardboard box of confetti, but it has a joke in it. So you break it oh, open. Okay. And then there's like a joke. The jokes in the Christmas crackers are bad. They're right. terrible, awful puns. They're really horrible jokes. They're not funny, but they are funny in how bad they are. Right. Apparently, they are intentionally meant to be bad, like universally loathed by everyone bad because the shared – because it's so hard to say everyone will find this funny. Right. It is much easier to say everyone will not find this funny. Right. Because everyone at the table will read the joke and go, ugh. And then they will share in that mutual community hatred of that joke. Yes. And it will raise their spirits because they all share something. Yes. So that's the, the experience of the Christmas cracker is a terrible joke to make everybody feel more together. But also, like, there's – even with insult comics and even, even with people that get a little mean-spirited with their humor, there is this understanding that if you are too mean, if you are too cruel, it automatically stops being funny. Uh, Usually. I think that there's there is a line there that is very wide because some people will take uh, very offensive stuff and just think it's hilarious as That's long as true. it's well written. Like me, it 
I I have never been offended by a joke that was well written. And I mean like I've heard I've heard a lot of tasteless, oh, sexist, racist, able like just the worst kind of thing like you wouldn't say this in public to other people in seriousness. Like this opinion is not something that I agree with you holding or whatever. Right. But you have written a joke. You have crafted a joke that is funny despite the premise. Right. Like it well, relies on the premise. Otherwise, like you can't just insert anything and still be funny, which is true for most jokes. But you've crafted a joke that's funny, despite the fact that it would be offensive if you just said these things that weren't in a joke. But I have. So I can laugh at the joke because the joke is funny, but not agree with the opinion. Right. Oh, I can too. But even even that said, I have definitely heard jokes that not only do I not agree with the opinion, it's not a well crafted joke. And I got a little offended by it. Now, I think it's perfectly fine to be offended by humor. What I don't think is okay is when you decide it's your place to stamp out that humor. Um, I think you can't control what you get offended by. You can control your reaction to it. And for me, getting offended by something is something that if if it hits me in a place that I'm not comfortable with or – you know, I just said Opie and Anthony, I don't like everything that they talk about. I don't like all their opinions. And you know what I do when I hear something that I don't like? I skip to the next thing or I stop listening. I don't go, well, we should take them off the air. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, and that's there have I... been a lot of jokes that I didn't find offensive. I honestly, I'm really trying to rack my brain. I cannot remember a joke I've ever been actually offended by. But I've had a lot of jokes where I was like, that's not funny. Right. Or, I mean, like, regardless – that like I get what you're going for, but really all you're doing is trying to make your shitty opinion funny. Right. And it didn't work. So now I just think you have a shitty opinion. Right. And, and you're you know, not funny. <laughs> I saw a festival, a comedy festival last year, um, where one of the comedians uh had a lot of jokes that were very dirty compared to a lot of the other comedians in this competition. And I obviously, if you, especially if you listen to the bearded ones, I have a filthy sense of humor. Filth does not bother me. Sure. What bothered me was the fact that uh, – I'll put it to you this way. His set closed with a joke he told about being in a bathroom and having a guy with no arms ask him if he could help him out and hold his dick so he could pee. And when the guy saw it, he said it was the most disgusting dick he'd ever seen. And then he ended up helping the guy and then said something about how gross his dick was. And then the guy produced both his arms from behind his back and said, yeah, well, I wasn't going to touch it. So the the filth of that joke did not offend me. What offended me was that is not an original joke. I've heard that joke told before. It's not even a great joke, but that's like the kind of joke your uncle would tell you. Yeah, that's yes. When he got a little bit tipsy at the barbecue. Yes. And it is a joke that I have heard. So after it was over, some of the other comics were talking about how they didn't like his set because it was too filthy. And I was like, let's get this in perspective. If it was funny, the filth wouldn't bother you. Yes. The problem was they were joke jokes that this guy didn't even write because they were joke jokes that you'd hear, you know, a family get together or and they felt just as flat yes in front of an audience as they do in front of the family i'm pretty sure it wasn't his material like he thought taking this joke that his uncle told him when he was 13 would be okay for a a competition of all things yeah and so the other comics were all offended by the filth and i was like it's not the filth it's the fact that these this isn't even his material and they're not good yeah uh okay so we were gonna get nerdy a little bit or i was (laughs) the joke tellers they're, they're dying or mostly dead breed because telling a joke just isn't funny to most people anymore. There is 
like we had Mitch Hedberg and kind of someone I think of as not his intentional, but his new protege, Dimitri Martin. Oh, I love Dimitri Martin. Both observational comics, Mm -hmm. straight observational comics. That was their whole comedy, but not in the same way that like Jerry Seinfeld was an observational comic. Like Dimitri Martin, when I saw his special on Comedy Central, I can honestly say I had never seen anything like it. No, he was very, very himself. And the first time that we listened to it, I hurt for two days from laughing so hard. He was riotously funny to me yes but there that comedy is is jokey in that it's like set up punchline it's very quick yeah but isn't jokes it's observational comedy right it's i've observed this thing but i have subverted the observe the observation that you normal people have like i have observed an escalator right everyone has observed an escalator everyone has observed a stopped escalator no one other than mitch hedberg has thought to apologize for them temporarily being stairs Right. Like, that's just not something that people do. So the way that he is able to see that and relay that observation to us in a way that is both recognizable but new, that's funny observational comedy. But it's not jokesters. We've lost the jokester until Anthony Jeselnik. Yes, I know who he is. I'll be honest, I haven't heard a ton of his material. Oh, my God. Like, some of his jokes you may not find personally funny, but they're jokes. Yeah. Every every like I don't know track on his CD is a joke. Right. It is set up punchline. It and they're disconnected. There's no story being told. There's no tapestry being woven. There's no accessibility from the things that you observed. It's just jokes. And they're kind of raunchy and a little bit wrong and very subversive sort of jokes, but they're jokes. Which now, because we all find jokes so passe and no one tells jokes anymore, hearing someone just get up on stage and joke, 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 joke is refreshing. And he is a joy to listen to, even though his shit is dark and kind of dirty and a little bit morbid and kind of rough. It's really rough around the edges. Like it's crafted very brilliantly, but just the feel of it. It's real gritty, but they're just joke 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 which we don't get anymore and it's amazing yeah like yeah. the fact that he has been able to reinvent and rebirth the jokester is astounding to me and i find him to be horribly underrated i hope he gets a lot more uh credit he's, for that ability he's probably one of those guys that is very respected among comics who the average person is not going to understand or like Probably. Because the average person wants something. The problem with being the average person in anything is that what you think is really funny, a lot of other people might not that, that know a little bit more about it simply because you're not exposed to as much. So the what other comics or other people who know comedy may consider kind of a hack comic who's just doing old school like you know jokes that everyone else has already done and not even as good as some of these other people. Well, you've never heard those other people, so yeah. you're going to think it's great. So that's what tends to hit sort of mainstream. Even Louis C.K., who's a huge comic now, I would not. I know people who don't know who he is. That's the I that baffles me. Yeah, I mean. That that's kind of like the premise of our show. I would love to run across somebody who doesn't know who Louis C.K. is because that would give me a chance to let them listen to every Louis C.K. album. Right, exactly. Like, really? Come over. We're going to watch him right now. Right. <laughs> We're going to do that together, and it's going to be awesome. But so, like, you and I feel like everyone should know who he is because yeah. he's this really successful, really great stand-up comic who has hosted Saturday Night Live, who has his own show, 
But that's still, these days anyway, his show does really well on its channel. Yeah. But these days, that doesn't mean the whole country watches it. It means that a small amount of people watch it because you need less ratings to be successful on those cable channels. So there's still a lot of people who don't really know who Louis C.K. is. Even hosting Saturday Night Live is not as big a thing as it used to be as far as yeah. reaching a number of people. And he's done right. it, what, three times now? Probably. So when he, to us, is considered sort of the cream of the crop, and still a lot of people don't necessarily know who he is or didn't even know he's a stand-up comic, then you get to people like the guy you're talking about, and they're going to hit such a smaller audience. Yeah. And I think that he's got a show on Comedy Central now, which is fine, but like all the – Louis C.K. has a show. Louis – Aziz Ansari is on Parks and Rec. Right. Anthony Jeselnik, I think, has a show. Daniel Tosh is Tosh 2.0. Like, a bunch of comics have shows. Yes. I don't ever like their shows as much as I like their comedy. Because Although Louis the shows... has had some fucking funny episodes. <laughs> yeah, but I don't like his show nearly, like, not even half as well as I like his comedy. It's true. It is very hard to translate. And especially, too, it's not like people I – don't, I don't – I would like to see the numbers on this of how many people – discover these guys for the first time on the TV shows that they're on and then go back and seek out their comedy because a lot of people just assume that they're actors. Right. Like, I knew Kevin Pollack as an actor before I ever knew him as a stand-up comic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way a lot of other people are. Um, I mean, obviously, if you watch Louis' show, you'd better figure out that he's a comic because his stand-up is in the show. Right. But, you know, go back to Seinfeld when he first yeah. had his show. You know, it opened with his stand-up bits, so people went, oh, he must be a comedian. And or, the whole oh, show he's an actor about... playing a comedian. Right. <laughs> but the whole show was him playing himself, yeah. talking about being a comedian. Right. I just I, – I have never liked – any comedian that I can remember, any comedian's show more than I liked their comedy because they're comedians. Right. And it's not that I begrudge them having shows or whatever. That's all added to their success. And it's also and not saying their... – it's not like you're saying the shows are bad. No. Very rarely have I seen one that's just like, oh, my God, get that shit off, unless it's a stupid-ass sitcom. Right. Like – Like Patton Oswalt on King of Queens. Well, let's take John Mulaney. Do you know who okay. John Mulaney is? Yeah. Okay. John Mulaney is a great new young – newish young comic his stand-up is hilarious like he has a bit that hurt z so bad he couldn't <laughs> breathe like he he just fell over on the floor unable to breathe he was laughing so hard and just tears streaming down his face like he's a really funny comedian they gave him a sitcom i watched right. some of the sitcom oh my god it is one of the worst sitcoms i have ever seen yeah it's so terrible. Like, it's just badly done. And everybody looks uncomfortable. It's just, right. it's horrid. Like, I don't begrudge them giving him this show. And I don't begrudge him doing the show. Good for him. Success for him. Whatever. It's a terrible fucking show. Right. Get back on stage. Tell your jokes. Like, that's what you're good at. Well, that's like, uh, where you shine. Uh, what was the guy in the 90s? Uh, Mr. Robinson or whatever. He had the sitcom. And I think that also hurts them in a way because it was a very clean, family-friendly shitty sitcom and then and everybody was, shows up at the show <laughs> he was not a clean family-friendly comic it's like bob saget being on full house everybody knows him as danny tanner yeah so then you know you see him on america's funniest home videos and he's telling these awful jokes that for some yep. reason some people found funny and then you go see him so oh honey bob saget's coming to town let's yeah. get the kids in goal 
that's a bad idea. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is a very bad idea. Again, and he, a lot of comics that, that have funny. shows. Yeah, he's filthy. It's a lot of comics have shows, and Eddie Murphy does that at the beginning of Raw. I think it was Raw, uh, where he's like, "If you expect me up here with a buckwheat wig on, you're in for a big motherfucking surprise." Right? Because that's not his act. Right. Like I do this shit on Saturday Night Live because that's my job. Right. This is not that job. This is a different job entirely, and this shit is not the same. No. So, yeah, uh, and that... I think that that does a disservice in some respects to them as stand-up comedians. But it also is great for their careers. So yeah, that's and... the whole balancing act you have to do. And that's fine with me. Like, seriously, go where the money is. I don't I don't blame right. you at all. Because stand-up comedy, unless you are Louis C.K. or Patton Oswalt or Eddie Murphy, the, that's not going to make you money. Yeah, we are past the days where these people are going to get huge specials. And become, you know, instant household names. We're past the days of HBO where you see comedy specials all the time. Not that HBO doesn't do comedy specials. Right. But like, again, I said in the 80s, everybody was getting a special, it seemed like. And all of a sudden, all these people were known. And nowadays, there's only that small number of cream of the crop, you know, top of the bill. You know, Chris Rock, everybody knows who Chris Rock is. And everybody knows that he was a comedian on Saturday Night Live and then a stand-up. But, I mean, he was obviously a stand-up first, but you know what I mean. That's how people know him. There's a guy on Saturday Night Live. Oh, he's a stand-up comic, too. Let's go see him. But people of his success rate are so rare in comedy. Yes. In fact, usually, and I'm not saying Chris Rock isn't brilliant because he is, but a lot of the brilliant people who do things sort of outside the box will always sort of be the -the under-the-radar comics. I saw um, Reggie Watts for the first time on Conan O'Brien and was blown away by what that guy could do. (laughs) But it's like that probably means he is always going to be a little bit under the radar. And honestly, for me, that's fine. Like, I don't not that I don't want stand up comedians to be successful. I absolutely do want good stand up comedians to be successful so they can continue to tell jokes. But I love the stand up comedians that people just kind of they go see at the club. Right. Like they always just go see them at the club. That's where they perform. And that's what they will do. Well, and I think or maybe comedian... or maybe they'll have like a podcast. Yeah. Uh, which all of them do now. <laughs> yes. I think comedians, too, to them, there's something sort of magical about a club because they will yes. go back to clubs when they don't have to. Yeah. You know, when Robin Williams passed away, um, you started hearing all these stories from comics about how he would show up at the clubs all the time, sometimes just to hang out. And it yeah. was like, you don't need to be here. You're Robin Williams. But he there's there's just something magical about a comedy club, a true comedy club. Like, I'm kind of hoping that Jon Stewart goes back to telling jokes. He probably will. Because his stand-up was incredible. It was great. It was great. Uh, Okay, so you've got your jokesters. Yep. Who are very rare and really the only stupendously great one we have now for our era is Anthony Jeselnik. And I recommend everyone listen to his stuff. It's very good. Uh, You have the storytellers, which are the ones that we have the most of. Yes. Almost every stand-up comedian that is popular that we know of are storytellers to some right. degree or another. Louis C.K., obviously, oh, I would definitely, there are yeah. many stories, like several different small stories within one special. Right. So it's not an overarching story. It's just like, here's a thing that happened, and I'll but take then, like, he'll tell a eight story minutes about to tell when you his, about it. When his like, three-year-old took a shit in the living room yes. that takes like 10 minutes to yeah. get to that finishing thing, but the whole story is just a great story. Exactly. And it's funny, at least a little bit, all the way through. Right. 
and that's the sign of a good storytelling comedian is right. that there is a punchline coming. The end of the story is why he's telling us the story. But the little details in the middle are the things that keep us interested yes. and keep the energy high till we get to the end, the, the big payoff. Uh, you know, Patton Oswalt's the same way. Yes. Even like Doug Stanhope. Yeah. Who I love. And is widely regarded as one of the filthiest, I can't believe he went there, comics. Yeah, he does that. not give a fuck. Like, no. there are people, I've heard people be like, well, Bill Burr, he is so out there. And he's so angry. And he's got such these edgy opinions. And that's not wrong. Right. But I, I listen to Doug Stanhope, like, as a rule. He's one of my personal favorites. And no one has anything on Doug Stanhope in terms of anger and uh, yeah. raunchiness and not giving a fuck. And again, anger is a dangerous thing to be when you're a stand-up. Yes. Because sometimes and, it can just come across as anger. Yes, and a lot of people read that off Doug Stanhope. They don't like how angry he is. Like, Bill Burr has this perfect level yeah. of he's and Louis Black. Oh, this yeah. perfect level of just angry enough. Right. That is accessible to how most people get that angry. Mm -hmm. And they never go above that. Well, I think Lewis Black purposefully goes above that to the point where it becomes funny. No, he doesn't. Like, if you if you listen to all of his stuff, his anger is, it's expected. But any time you think that it might be too angry, it's really, it's very much like because he is the crotchety old man angry. Right. We may, you know, I'm 36 years old. I'm not a crotchety old man, but I've known crotchety old men. Yeah. So that brings I'm 38 that level and back I down. Am. It just brings it back down into kind but then of he'll the do something silly. Of angry. Like he'll get to this point where you're just like, oh my God, he's going to explode. And then he'll do that face shake thing that he does. Like, yep. And it's almost like an old vaudeville thing all of a sudden. Yes, absolutely. And that's all crafted very, very well to make yeah. sure that it's it's angry and you, you don't miss that it's angry. But it is never so angry that it alienates you right. as an audience member or makes you think that he's angry at you. Right. Or that he's accusing you of causing the thing that he's angry about. Doug right. Stanhope doesn't give a shit. Right. He does not give a fuck what you think about whether or not he's angry at you. Like, he just doesn't care. Right. I mean, maybe he does. But <laughs> at least it, it never comes across like he does. And his delivery is such that he's just he doesn't give a shit if you think it's funny if you like it or not the people you know the the five percent of people who are going to like his shit that's who he's telling jokes for right the rest of 95 percent of you he couldn't give less of a shit about and there's something so appealing about that to me and, and it the, doesn't hurt that i agree with most of his opinions yeah. well also uh, i think the thing about a comedian like doug stanhope is it's not like he doesn't want to be successful but he also can't think of another way to do it if he's being honest Honest, which is something we haven't touched on yet, but 99% of the time, honesty in stand-up comedy is so essential. If you're trying to be something that you're not, it's almost never going to work. Yeah, in you fact, have to be sincere or at least be able to things, come across as sincere. One of the funniest things they do on Opie and Anthony regularly is uh, in one episode in particular, they brought the the people who are like the ball busters of all time. Patrice O'Neill when he was still alive, uh, Colin Quinn, and I think Bill Burr into the studio to watch one of Jim Norton's first recorded attempts at stand-up while Jim okay. Norton was in the studio. And it was painful but hilarious. And part of it was he wasn't being himself. And that's yeah. what all of them keyed in on. And so I think it's not like I don't think Doug Stanhope wants to be successful. I'm sure he does. But he also is like, but if I'm going to do stand-up, I have to do it in my voice. Yeah, and exactly. If you don't like it, sorry. Um, 
Let's see. So there's the storytellers who, and that is 90% of the comedians that we have nowadays are storytelling comedians. It's just what story are they telling? Right. I think that our most storytelling comedian would have to be Mike Birbiglia. Um, I'm a I'm a big Mike Birbiglia. Uh, he started as kind of a jokey comic, like his first CD is, you know, joke, joke, joke. It's standard stand-up comedy fare, short stories that were funny. Right. But now he's become kind of this more performance artist, whole play story in his same voice, but with a much more in-depth, I'm telling you an overarching story. So there are going to be smaller bits but they all relate to this larger narrative that I am giving to you here. And we're going to go on this one narrative journey together. And also, that's something that he does that most other comics don't do, at least don't do well. Right. A- and it's brilliant. Well, also, there's a level of vulnerability. Um, I think yes. when Mike Birbiglia started, he obviously had no problem making fun of himself and peeling back his heart and showing you his insecurities. But sure. the last special I heard of his just did end up sort of being this huge huge arc of one story about how he cheated on his girlfriend my sister's or my girlfriend's boyfriend yes and how everything that led up to that and you know the things that he did wrong and all this other stuff and it was really personal like yes really personal and i think that is important too you have to be okay with sharing a side of yourself that almost no one else on the planet would ever think to do in front of a group of people yeah Absolutely. And to some varying degree, obviously, not everyone's going to get up and talk about and, and tell the whole story yeah, no. about how, you know, they had cancer or about how they have this really weird sleeping disorder mm-hmm. that makes them hurt themselves and others or mm-hmm. how they've cheated on their girlfriend. Like, they're not going to tell those stories in that way. Right. Uh, but he does. And he does it in a way that is not weird it's not awkward like it doesn't make you feel weird to be there watching that like oh god i don't want to hear about you want to hear him tell this story right he involves you in that in a way that is uh encouraging as a and inspiring as opposed to off-putting and uncomforting and that's that's a very rare quality because most people can't tell you about how they cheated on their girlfriend and make you laugh with them right. about how they did that or how they had cancer. Like they right. just can't make that story work, but he can. And that's a be- that's a beautiful talent that he has. And I find everything that he's done from Two Drink Mike, which is just funny stand-up comedy stuff, right. through My Secret Public Journal, all the way to uh, My my Girlfriend's Boyfriend. They're, right. All of that stuff is just beautifully crafted. Yes. Uh, so we've got them and then all the big ones that I just, you can't not mention, but of course we've talked about a bunch at this yeah, point. <laughs> and then the kind of, I don't, I don't want to call them B comics cause to me they're not, they're, they're all fantastic. And these are the ones that I will listen to more. Sure. Even if not everybody knows who they are. Sure. And I'm talking about people like, um, well, everybody knows who Chris Hardwick is now because yes. he's on At Midnight and he's Nerdist. Everybody yes. knows him. But his stand-up comedy is actually really quite good. Well, even somebody like Mark Marin, who almost no one knew of until his podcast hit it big. And still, you, there's a ton of people who don't know who Mark Marin is. Do you know that blows my mind? Because Mark Marin's been a stand-up comic since I was little. Yeah. And I'm not a young woman. Like yeah. He's been a stand-up comic for my whole life. And people didn't know who he was. That astounded me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because he's had specials and like he's not unknown, except apparently he kind of he's is very still, unknown. Yeah. Which is just weird. And and to a certain extent, still unknown. Again, yeah, you go I outside people that. that know comedy and podcasts, they're gonna go, Who the fuck is Mark Marin? Every time I've ever had to tell a story about the What the Fuck podcast, I start with, Do you know Mark Marin? And usually there will be a shake of the head because they don't know comedy or podcasts. If you know podcasts, you can't not know Mark Marin. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I've only listened to a couple episodes of What the Fuck because I, even though I do a podcast, I don't really approve the not approve. I don't really like the format most of the time. Right. So there are a couple more standard podcasts that I have listened to. Like You Made It Weird by Pete Holmes. Right. Uh, mostly because he has a lot of stand-up comics on there. And I'm a comedy nerd, so I like to follow stand-up comics. Do you listen to uh, Doug Loves Movies? I have listened to a bunch of Doug Loves Movies. I do love Doug Benson. Even though I do not have any interest at all in the the marijuana subculture or whatever right. you would call it, like the stoner culture. I'm not a part of that. Right. I think Doug Benson is one of the funniest. He's a very comedians. funny man. Like I'm not a part of that culture, but he makes it accessible enough and funny Absolutely. enough that I get every joke. It's not like I'm blind to that subculture. Like, right. I'm on the internet as well. Like, I mean, I know what he's talking about and he's really good at telling jokes around it. Right. That are accessible to everybody. And I've had people like, I don't really like Doug Benson. I don't smoke pot. Like I don't smoke pot either. Doug Benson is hilarious. Yeah, he's a funny like, dude. The two things don't have to go together. They can, apparently, but they don't have to. Like, you don't have to get high to listen to Doug Benson. Right. I'm living. It helps, I'm sure. <laughs> but Maybe. Don't I don't know. I laugh out loud. Like, I will listen to stand-up comedy when I'm out doing chores. Right. So I'll be in Home Depot or whatever, just listening to a Doug Benson album. This happened not that long ago. And he releases a comedy album, or he records a comedy album on 420 every year. Right. Every year he records an album. So he has a new album out every year for like the past six years. So I, I listen to his new album every time it comes out. And this year I was listening to his new release while I was in Home Depot. And I was standing next to some doorknobs when he told just some – like I don't even remember what joke it was, but it was about pot or whatever. And it cracked me up so bad that I had to stop and like I just put my hand on one of the doorknobs and I had to hold it to keep myself standing because <laughs> I was laughing so hard just by myself in the middle of a Home Depot. And that's a rare talent to be able to take something that not everyone takes part in and include them in it right. in a way that makes it accessible to everybody, but is still honest. Yes. That's incredible to me. So, yeah, I have listened to a bunch of Doug Loves movies because uh, he's really funny and it's a good it's a good podcast for a format. He's actually very good at podcasting. Yeah. So he it's is. easy and to listen to. He invented a game. I mean, yeah. the Leonard Malton game's kind of taken off. It's good. It's very good. But that's kind of why I actually talked about his podcast, because I figured you'd be a Doug Benson fan, and he's another sort of B-level comic that people outside the comedy world don't really know anything about. I don't understand that. I just don't get it. Like, there are some people that I, I know why you don't know who. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's say I know why you don't know who Moshe Kasher is. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you, Evan, know who Moshe Kasher is. I actually don't. <laughs> but I, do, I, I know why you don't. Like, that makes sense to me. He is, he has a podcast. He has two, actually, that I know of. And he's incredibly funny. He's like kind of a street smart young Jew. Sure. <laughs> and he's like, he's actually really funny. His jokes are very well crafted. He's, again, very accessible, very honest. But anybody that is a little bit street smart or is kind of was a white kid that grew up in an urban area. Right. Or, you know, somebody who couldn't honestly say, I mean, yeah, I've got a lot of black friends, but actually kind of maybe has some black friends. Like right. who actually isn't just 
faking that or whatever, but just kind of has an in to a subculture that isn't their own. Right. He's that he's that comic. Right. Uh, so, oh, what is his name? What is his name? Neil Brennan. You should yes, know who I Neil do, Brennan is. I do know who Neil Brennan is, yes. He co-created The Chappelle Show with Dave Chappelle. Yes, he did. He has a stand-up comedy special called Women and Black Dudes. No one, no white guy has gotten the cross-culture or cross-racial bridge gapped the way Neil Brennan has. And his delivery of that gap, or of bridging that gap, is amazing. Right, because he's also, like you said, he's not trying to be something that he's not. Not at all. He just not understands an aspect of, of culture that most people in his position don't. Yeah, and he delivers that not in a way that's like, okay, other white people... Let me explain to you why me, an also white person, right. knows more. Like, he doesn't deliver it like that. He's not above you. He's just a part of something you're not a part of, and he's able to access both. So he can deliver both sides to everybody without making either of them feel excluded or picked on or um, taken advantage of or exploited. And it's just a really, it's a very new way for us to kind of access things we can't necessarily access in our own lives without being alienated from them. And I actually think that comedy is one of the best ways for us to cure a lot of social ills. Oh, yeah. Well, that's um, why I'm so anti, you know, censorship or anti, you know, because uh, my my thinking of it is this. It, how many times has someone been offended by something a comedian said because they're just listening to it on the surface and they don't? And, and if you feel that it's your right to say that person should no longer be able to say what they're saying because it bothers you, you're actually potentially squashing a voice that could lead to something. I mean, and we go back to somebody like Pryor or Lenny Bruce. You could get easily offended by some of the stuff they said on the surface until you understood where it was coming from. And that's why just looking at the surface bugs me, and that's why I think that really nothing should be off limits as far as comedy is concerned because it might bother you, fine, leave the room. But you might actually be censoring something that could be showing a lot of people a different aspect of something that they never would have thought about before. Well, like I'm a huge fan of Stephen Fry. Yeah. And he's got that now very uh, quoted quote that it's very common to hear people say I'm rather offended by that as if that gives them certain rights. Right. Uh, so so what that you are offended by something. Right. Like I'm not big on offense on purpose. Right. Like I don't find it um, – I don't find any net benefit in deliberately hurting someone else. Right. Like going out of your way to make someone else feel bad. That's not really a positive no. thing to me. However, if what I'm saying is not meant in offense, and instead of approaching me with the attitude of what you have said is said in a way that might hurt people's feelings, including mine, I would be happy to have a dialogue with you about that. Right. But the fact that you are offended by something that is not intended to offend doesn't mean anything. It means you're offended by something. Right. And I, I'm a believer in that. Not because I think it's okay to offend people on purpose. I kind of don't. I would rather people not offend others on purpose. Right. But if you are offended by something that is just in front of you, not because it is meant to serve an offensive purpose, but just because you don't like it, fuck you. I don't give a shit that you don't like it. Right. Like, really, it doesn't mean anything that you are offended by something in front of you. Right. Turn around so it's behind you. Exactly. 
Uh, let's see. So yeah, I think comedy can cure a lot of social ills, and I think that it has a long history of doing exactly that. It's said that Hitler banned Jewish comedians because if you can laugh with someone, you aren't able to dehumanize them. Right. It makes them human to be able to laugh with them, and that was obviously not something he wanted to have happen. So, uh, and Jews are good at jokes. Like for whatever reason, <laughs> Jewish comedy is just a staple of modern human society. Jewish comedy and now ca Canadian comedy is becoming a very big deal. It's like in your blood. <laughs> well, and of course, we're as Americans, we're very kind of centrist about our entertainment mm -hmm. and so we kind of miss like the new zealand comedians right. who are absolutely hilarious or a lot of us don't get raised like i was on uh, british comedy right and you know it's funny to me though that, that some of that stuff does slip through who hasn't heard of monty python who uh, really started people, as sadly. a sketch group yeah. who at this point hasn't heard of uh well ricky gervais sure or 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 eddie izzard you know he's getting some renown in this country and it's just well, like it's it's funny to it's interesting to me to think about why comedians like that break through when there are people like, you know, Hugh Laurie, for example, who started off doing sketch comedy. And most people in America have no idea. I know. And it bugs the hell out of me because uh, Fry and Laurie, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie mm -hmm. are one of the best comedy duos that I have ever seen. Well, it's like you watch a movie like Hot Fuzz. And to a Brit, it's chocked full of cameos from famous comedians. To yeah. an American, it's got Simon Pegg and Nick Frost in it. Right. So how and do these other guys slip through? How does somebody like Ricky Gervais slip through and these other guys I don't when his humor is know. so British? If you watch The Office, it is so British. Like the original Office? Yes. It is very British, and it's the only reason that I – like I actually don't really like the United the American Office uh -huh. Like, I didn't find it funny at all. I did, but the British I don't Office like is that pretty funny. Format. I don't like The Office, and I don't like Parks and Rec, and I don't... I, the, something about that format is just not funny yeah. to me. But the British, The Office, yeah, it wasn't, like, laugh-out-loud funny, but it wasn't intended to oh, be. it had its moments. It was... <laughs> when he does the motivational speech with the backwards cap, and he thinks it's, like, some show or something that he's doing and but he's it was it was more awkward funny, oh yeah like kind of in the way that um the movie office space was yes. for americans but the british sentimentality of it yes that mindset well fit the difference, that scenario way better truly, than an american sentimentality in, does in british humor you are truly 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 laughing at someone and not with them most in of the a time. lot of it yes it is it is much more self-deprecating even than our own one of the funniest and most painful scenes I have watched, and this is getting away from stand-up, but it was created and written by a stand-up, so it kind of makes sense, was, uh, have you seen Life is Short? Yes. Um, do you remember the scene where Warwick Davis goes back to his house and to get something and sees his wife with her new boyfriend, her lawyer? Yes. And decides to, out of sheer pride, pretend he's coming there for an award, which is at the top of a shelf that he then has to climb to get. And they offer him help, and this pride of his bucks up, and he says, no, I got it. And then you just watch silently as this tiny man tries to climb this shelf yep. and gets himself hung up. And it is one of the most awkward, hilarious things I've ever seen. Yeah, the Brits do awkward better than anyone Anybody. else in terms of comedy. And that comes through in their stand-up as well. And mm -hmm. one of my favorite British stand-ups is Jimmy Carr. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Carr does a lot of stuff in, yes. in Britain, and if you are, if you know anything about British comedy at all, you know who he is because he just shows up just randomly in everything. 
uh, but he actually co-wrote a book and the basic premise of the explanation of comedy in that book is that uh, humor, especially these days, is about subversion. Right. It's about the punchline and being a subversion of the setup. Mm-hmm. So you you tell a joke that everyone just kind of your first you know subconscious guess as to where the joke is going. The reason a joke will be funny is that the punchline will be slightly like, but not exactly as that finish that you were imagining. Right. So it subverts your expectation, and that subversion, that immediate switch from oh, this is what I expect him to say. Oh, but that's not what he said. That's funny. Right. And I've been, since I heard him talking about that part of his book, I've been listening to a lot more comedy with that in mind. And that really does show through a lot more comedy than I would have expected. Oh, absolutely. It's not the immediate, like the very clear subversion of a premise, but Mm -hmm. just the really subtle twists of here's how I think this joke is going to end. Right. And because I listen to a lot of comedy, I kind of know how many jokes are probably going to end. Mm -hmm. So if a comedian can take even someone, a comedy nerd like me, and subvert my expectations Mm -hmm. of how a joke is going to end, that's... That's beautiful. And British comedians are better at that than anyone. But even in theater, you know, you look at theater and whenever you're in a comedy, directing a comedy, whatever, the thing you'll hear more often than not is stay ahead of the audience. Because if you throw them something they're expecting, it's not going to work. Sometimes it does. Sometimes the payoff is exactly what they want to see and they get to see it and they love it. But for the most part and comedy in general, the laugh comes from the surprise of whatever situation is happening. And I think the same in stand-up. Also, the sentimentality of the Brits seems to be a lot of times, you know, the upper class doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. Anybody in a position of authority is usually a buffoon. Like uh, right. Black Adder. He thinks he, it's always the person that thinks he's in a position of responsibility when he's really not. Well, Rowan Atkinson is in a, a class all his own to me. Yes. Well, he he's... gets into more performance art comedy. Yes, absolutely. And he, he, I don't think, counts exactly as a stand up comedian because that's just not where his wheelhouse is. He has one kind of stand up comedy special, but it, it, again, you're right, it is more performance art than it's not jokes. Right. And it's not even storytelling in a funny way. It's, it's one and one and two man sketches, basically. But they're so special and unique. And most people in the United States know him as Mr. Mr. Bean, Bean more yeah. than they know anything about him. And he has such a vast repertoire that is larger than that. But he's one of those physical comedians mm-hmm. that only comes around like once in a generation. That... Well, and that brings up an interesting topic to me. Um, and now we can maybe get into the comics who are sort of maligned by other stand-ups. Okay. And the funny thing about it is a majority of them are very physical. For some reason, comedians don't seem to respect onstage physical comedy in a stand-up setting as much as they do other forms. Look at, you know, Carrot Top is a prop guy. Sure. And his props may be creative, and I can't say the man has never made me laugh because he has. But he is a punchline now with a lot of comics. Yes. Um, Dane Cook who is not a physical comic per se, but he gets very big and physical and broad in his performances. I've never hated Dane Cook, but he's not my favorite either. He's just sort of in that middle ground. But he's a guy that a lot of people who aren't comedy nerds has heard of, and we are totally willing to say he's like their favorite comic. Yeah, I I actually have nothing particular against Dane Cook. 
a lot of people do. You're absolutely right. And it's kind of like Dane Cook is like the nickelback of comedy. Right. No one that you've ever talked to likes Dane Cook. He is somehow such the he easy, sells out stadiums. He's the easy punchline if you're writing something about uh, a c- comedians talking or anybody talking. If you want to go to an example of bad comedy that everybody understands, it's either Dane Cook or Carrot Top. And which is kind of weird. Carrot Top, not as much because he was very specialized in the type of comedy that he told and it really only had about 15 minutes in the late 80s right where that was an accessible type of comedy vegas yes but that's really it's more of like a sideshow sort of space than it is a main stage sort of right niche right and i mean he's milking that and that's fine and you know however he finds his his success i wish him all the best Mm -hmm. not really my style though you're i'm with you he has absolutely made me laugh mostly when i was younger Mm mm-hmm uh, but Dane Cook, like, I've listened to all of Dane Cook's specials, and I have watched the the videos of those specials as well. And it is slightly different when you are looking at him than it is when you are just listening. Yes. And I think one of the things that a lot of stand-up comedians and maybe some comedy nerds don't like so much about Dane Cook is that comedy, like stand-up comedy, joke-telling comedy is an audio is an audio medium very much you're standing on the stage but that's really just so you can listen to what he's telling you right very little of that comedy is meant to be sight gags absolutely and some like doug benson does this on almost every album he'll do one physical joke and make a joke about the fact that he's doing a physical joke on a cd yeah well another thing too about doug benson he's the last guy when you see him that you expect to do a physical yeah because he doesn't go anywhere (laughs) Like, and it's really stand-up comedy is kind of at its core. It's you and a microphone. It's yeah. just you and a mic, and you're just there with the microphone to impart this funny knowledge onto the audience. Yeah, and I think that there is just something different to many stand-up comedians, like club comedians, that don't really appreciate or like or want to see a part of that world. The stadium comedians, mm-hmm. like Dane Cook. But then Steve Martin is one of the most respected comics ever, and he was like the first stadium comedian. Yes. And he was physical and silly. Yes, absolutely. And his comedy relied on that. Yeah, in a very uh, smart way, it but may still, yeah. Have been, it may have been mostly because the CD wasn't really a medium. Right. Like putting out audio was at least as challenging as putting out video. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I'm not sure why. I mean, other than the fact that Steve Martin was an absolute genius at what he yes. did, it's when just somebody hard like to... I, I remember hearing something about Steve Martin. Somebody was talking to Richard Pryor and kind of shit on Steve Martin a little bit. And the quote was Richard Pryor turned to them and said, Steve Martin is a genius. When Richard Pryor calls you a genius. Yeah, because Richard Pryor was a genius. You, yeah, he w- absolutely was. So you're doing something right. But I kind of have a theory about why the Dane Cooks of the world are hated, too. And there's not a comedian worth of salt that's not going to admit to insecurity, right. to being an insecure person. Yep. And Dane Cook, when he was at his peak, seemed to be the golden god of comedy in that he's young, he's good-looking, and he has an amount of success that most stand-up comics who had been plugging away for years would die to get. So, of course, there was going to be some animosity shoved his way. Yeah. Um, he's been accused of stealing jokes. Um, I think, you know, did you see the episode of Louie that he was on playing himself? I did not. Go back and just find the clip where he and Louie are talking because it's really an uh, honestly pretty awesome clip because 
it turns into just Dane Cook and Louis C.K. having a conversation about Louis C.K. accusing him of stealing jokes. Okay. It's actually really cool because it's not meant to be funny once they get to that point. Right. Um, but, yeah, so people like him. But most comedians, are as soon as something gets gimmicky, you can just see the looks on their faces. Yeah, because there, there is so much vulnerability and honesty in being a stand-up comedian. Kind of no matter what you're – type or brand or character of stand-up comedy is there is a whole lot of you as a person that you're putting out Mm -hmm. and people like dane cook strike many serious comedy people as inauthentic yes well what i've heard the other criticism i've heard about dane cook and i was talking to a good friend of mine who is a comic about this and his quote was he doesn't have any jokes they want a comedian with jokes set up punchline set up punchline I think that I think my analogy of Dane Cook to Nickelback is relatively accurate because mm-hmm. and I I'm going to look for this and try to remember who said it but a comedian it may have been Louis CK but I am not sure right now said that Dane Cook was the he just set out to be a stadium comic. He didn't want to do all the right the clubs the right. brick wall the one microphone and 30 people in a crowd he wanted to be a stand-up comedian mm-hmm. in a stadium as a stand-up comic in a stadium with a stadium full of people and by god that's what he did yeah he's the he is the accessible pop music of stand-up comedy yeah that the average every man can just relate to and not have to think about his comedy is right. not smart his comedy is not clever his comedy is just it's just fun. It's nothing fun like Nickelback. Right. There's no real talent there necessarily. But, but they know how to write a song. the talent of playing to an audience that big, which is an audience they wanted to play to. Right. Well, so, and I like the tact that people like uh, Lewis Black take because I think for the most part, as long as they're not douchebags, once you're in this club of comedy, you should at least have a rudimentary respect for anyone that's successful in it because that does nothing yeah. but help other comedians. Yes. And Lewis Black actually wrote a foreword to Larry the Cable Guy's autobiography. Yes. It was either Larry the Cable Guy or Ron White. It was Larry the Cable Guy. And that's basically what he said. It's like, look, you may not get this guy's humor, but he makes a large segment of the population laugh. So you can't sit there and say he's not funny. You can say you don't find him funny. Right, exactly. But you can say he, you can't say he's not funny when a large segment of the population likes what he does. I saw Bill Maher defend uh, 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 Clint Eastwood at the Republican National Convention when he did that unbelievably embarrassingly awkward Invisible Obama and chair bit. Yep. When he was like, hey, it played to the room. Everybody was making fun of Clint Eastwood the next day. And he was like, the room loved it. And that's all that really matters at the time. In whatever room you're playing in, if they love it, that is the success. Exactly. Um, You brought up Lewis Black and we've mentioned him before. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I did want to save him for last as a comedy nerd. Mm-hmm. So if you want to talk about anybody else, we should do that. Um, you know, there is one other person I would like to talk about. And and also the fact that it may be a symptom of comedy that we haven't really talked about many women. Because there are some funny fucking women out there. <sighs> okay, here's the thing. <laughs> oh, God. There have been a lot of studies about how audiences react to different whomever's in comedy, black people Mm -hmm. in comedy, women in comedy, white dudes in comedy, young people in comedy, how different presenters present comedy and how that is accepted by an audience. And a lot of people say incorrectly that women aren't funny. And that's why there aren't women comedians. That's not accurate. That's not a true statement. It's an oversimplification and really pretty shitty thing to say. Mm -hmm. But women tend to laugh more at men. 
Right. Like, not laugh at them. No, it is kind of a laugh at in a way. That has become a genre in itself. Look at every sitcom that was written in the 90s. No, yes. But in terms of stand-up comedy or any time when there is, like, an an authenticity to the comedians in front of Mm. you as opposed to in a sitcom or whatever. But if they're on, like, a panel show or an interview show or doing their stand-up, women laugh louder and more and have an earnest enjoyment, a, a greater earnest enjoyment of male comedians. And men tend to... Oh, I see what you're getting at. Tend to respond more warmly toward a female comedian, but not get the jokes as well. Right. Well, I mean, it all it, it does come from your life experience. And like it or not, women and men just have different life experiences. And part of the problem is that, like, one of my favorite comedians is Kathleen Madigan. Oh, yeah. She's great. She is incredible. She's really quite stellar as a comedian like gender not as a part of it she's just really funny because she just tells really good jokes right and they're not about how her period makes her do stuff that's weird and they're not about how she had to breastfeed a baby Mm -hmm. and they're not about how she gets hit on awkwardly right they're just good jokes about life. But again, like, we can't chastise women for telling those jokes because the comedy has to come from your life experience. And if periods, babies, and getting awkwardly hit on are part of your life experience, then as long as you have an individual take on it, not the same take that every other female comic has, then you're doing something. Uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Maria Bamford. Oh, yes. She is one of those comics that is hugely respected by all comics. But is probably never going to hit the mainstream because of her style. Yes. I mean, her voice work is second to few. Oh, yeah. She's hilarious. It's sort of like she is, you know, one of those people. You know, I think of people who do such subtle things that no other comics are doing. I think of like Jim Gaffigan and his audience voice. Yes. And and her and her deeper voice (laughs) where I'm not even sure what her real voice is. And they're not incorporating gimmicks or trickery. It's part of the setup. It's part of the joke. It's part of the payoff. Yeah. The problem comes when you talk about female comics, when the aspect of their comedy that they are making their comedy is that they are female comics. Mm -hmm. And because comedy is a largely male-dominated venue, uh, the way to separate yourself out is to have different life experience to present. But the only real quality difference in their life experience is the fact that they're women. Well, the fact that you're a woman isn't inherently funny. Right. That difference in your life experience is shared by 51% of the world all by itself. That makes it not funny. Right. So if that's all you're bringing, you're not going to be funny. Right. And the whole – the difference between the sexes comedy, that got old a long, long time ago, like a really long time ago. Every once in a while, you can throw in a, here's how like men are like this, and then women are like that, and one joke of that can be funny in a larger set. Right. But if your whole set is about how your life is so much different simply because you're a man or woman, it's not funny. We're done right. with that. The women are like this and men are like that isn't right. humorous anymore. Well, that's why, you know, and, and I don't know why she's becoming such a target. I've heard a lot of comedians target her lately. Maybe it's because of her success. But I remember Ellen DeGeneres having a couple of specials on Comedy Central in the mid-90s that I loved to watch. And now her material on paper might not be fantastic. But her style of delivery always made me at least chuckle. 
Well, yeah, in the '90s there was like like Paula Poundstone. Even Rosie Paula O'Donnell was, was actually I'm, funny I'm really in the sad '90s. To see that I haven't heard from Paula Poundstone in a very long time. She put out an album just a couple years ago, uh, and it was just as funny as her other stuff. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she talks on the album. She's a she's a lesbian with like three adopted children with her partner. And right. she talks about that. Well, mm-hmm. obviously, being a lesbian with three adopted children and you're going to get material <laughs> isn't something that everybody experiences. Right. But it is, is at least something that, like, okay, yes, a long-term relationship and children; these are kind of shared by human society. So, yes. okay, that at least we understand. But she does have something different to bring to it, though it's not like the main joke. It's just part of the fact that right. sets up whatever sh- whatever story she's telling. And that is an interesting way to do that. So her her real life experience that is shared by everyone is brought up mm-hmm. in order to include us in that. Well, and I would like to even space. I would like to even point out a couple other people. Like I was a huge fan and still am. I just haven't seen a stand up from her for a while of Wanda Sykes. We had a comedian on uh, the Bearded Ones named Dinah Leffert. Yes. Um, I think she's going to be breaking out soon. If you want to check her out, give her a look because she's really, really smart and really, really funny. But the other person I wanted to bring up real quick when we talk about comedians that come across as real gimmicky or get over physical in shows, somebody like Dane Cook is much maligned by comics. Then you look at somebody like Brian Regan, who you would think being a clean, physical Jim Carrey-esque comic at certain times. Like You watch him live and there are times when I'm reminded of Jim Carrey. He is worshipped by comics. Yes. Because, I mean, he is hilarious. Don't get me wrong. Every time I ever do an impression of Brian Regan, at some point it always includes, oh, no. (laughs) I think one of the reasons Brian Regan is funny, especially to Americans, is that he's as close as we get to true absurdist comedy. Mm -hmm. uh, Because we're not big on absurdity here. Right. We know we're not. The the Brits love absurdist comedy. They really do. I remember trying to show a friend of mine uh, now for something completely different. And by the end of the blowing people up behind shrubs bit, she was like, can we watch something else? My parents are so funny because they brought me up on Monty Python and other, you know, British absurdist comedy. And so we've always thought that was freaking hilarious. And they showed... I think it was Holy Grail to their mm-hmm. best friends of forever many years. They'd been best friends with these people forever and realized they hadn't seen the Holy Grail. And they're like, oh, we've got to fix that. So they sat down to watch it. My parents are crying with laughter. It never got old for them mm-hmm. because it doesn't. No. And they're just dying because it's hilarious. And their friends are just sitting on the couch like, we don't get it. Right. <laughs> like they didn't get it at all. No. Not only did they not find it funny, they just didn't understand it. And to my parents and to me and to other people who grew up on Monty Python or came into them late and think that they're amazing, it's just like, how do you not get this? This is comedy. This is humor. This is like the most basic hilarity you can possibly experience. And they just didn't understand the absurdist aspects of it at all. So Brian Regan is about as close as we get as a culture, I guess, to that level of absurdity, but it's still accessible to us. What I love about Regan is that when he gets to his punchlines, it almost is exactly what you expect the punchlines to be, but he has such a unique way of stating it. Yes. I'm trying to think of one of his punchlines right now. Um, Oh, it's one about birthday parties and how they all go wrong and stabbing a bunch of kids with a with a uh, pin the tail on the donkey and the the punch the part of the punchline because he also has like leveled punchlines where he'll give you one and then he'll give you like two or three more yeah yes and uh, one of my favorite because it's just the way he says it and the way he words it is so funny I thought this was a happy house 
That's what I think is really great about Regan because, of course, everyone's thought before about Pin the Tail and the Donkey being a bad idea at a birthday party. Right. You get a bunch of irresponsible kids, blindfold them, and give them something sharp. But it's worth it just to get to, I thought this was a happy house. (laughs) And, you know, the first time I heard Regan was on uh, Bob and Tom, and I knew there was something special about him because people were calling in to the Bob and Tom show to ask him to redo his jokes. Yes. Because they just didn't get tired of hearing them. And I can't tell you how many times in the space of an hour I heard the phrase cup of dirt. And I was like, I got to know what the fuck this guy's talking about. (laughs) The yellow one is the sun. He's one of the most quotable comics in recent memory. He absolutely is. And you can just do one quote and the whole joke from start to finish Mm -hmm. will play through your mind. Yes. And because his jokes are, they're very funny. Right. The whole joke will play. And just the one, like six words from that whole joke will make you start laughing as if he had told you the whole joke. And he's also like a feel good comic. Like comics listen to him when they want to be happy. Yes. (laughs) Because he's. Again, we live in that really postmodern, ironic, cynical mm-hmm. society where you know people fresh like, like Louis C.K. and Patton Oswalt, they fit in really, really well mm-hmm. there, and that's wonderful. But sometimes you don't – I just want to laugh at something <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Not that those guys aren't quotable. I want all the ham. <laughs> I want all the ham. <laughs> <laughs> They're great. They're fantastic. They're truly great. But yes, Um, Brian Regan's kind of a breath of fresh air when it's not taking away from the brilliance of those guys. But every once in a while, you just want to laugh. That's why you go and watch Mind of Python and the Holy Grail. And then you turn right around and watch Anchorman. Right. Because Anchorman is just silly fun. We have we have now uh, Pete Holmes, Mm -hmm. who does a lot of stuff that isn't. He also has a podcast Mm -hmm. uh, who does a lot of stuff that isn't stand up comedy. But his comedy is like Brian Regan's. And I found out later, not much of a shock as Brian Regan is like his biggest influence. Right. So his comedy reflects a lot of that. Which is really something, again, saying about Brian Regan when you think about it. He hasn't been out that long to Uh, make you think. But but I mean, huge for that long to make you think that people are citing him as a big influence. When I see a comedian talking about their big influences, I think, okay, they're going to say Pryor. They're going to say Carlin. We really haven't even talked about Carlin that much, but shamefully. But um, they're going to say guys like that. And now people are already saying, oh, Brian Regan has been a huge influence on me. Yeah. And it just doesn't feel like he's been around that long. He totally has. Well, I know he has, but I mean, to the point where you're getting comics who are adults who might have been listening to him when they were kids saying that he was a huge influence. I don't know. If I were to become a stand-up comic now, he would probably be on my list. I think he's going to be an influence to the point where we're going to get sick of the Brian Regan-influenced imitators. I don't know, because I think in the world that we live in, pulling that off takes a special brand of both humor and um, innate happiness <laughs> mm-hmm. that most of us just don't possess. Right. We're too Although bitter. Me and Anthony told a story about the first time they ever saw Brian Regan really get angry was when they all went out after a show and he got really drunk and he just started going, these motherfuckers. Which is like so, like neither you or I are shocked to hear cursing. Right. But hear from Brian, Brian Regan. Regan yeah. get all mad for no reason. That would make me uncomfortable. All right. Let's do my last one of two things. Yes. You you mentioned Carlin. He was yes. going to go in with uh, my Lewis Black. Okay, great. Let's do it. Here, Here is where Lewis Black and also George Carlin and, of course, 
a healthy handful of several others. Right. Here's why, to me, they and their ilk are um, the best types of stand-up comedians. Mm -hmm. Because I think of stand-up comedy all by itself as a noble art form. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's not being that's not being pandering, and it's not meant to be facetious or overselling it. But there is a long history in human society of the jester. Right. The one who is allowed and, in fact, required to make fun of the king. Yeah, there's a great uh, there was a great subplot in uh, The Tudors. I don't know if you watched that or not, but I Some of it, yes. obsessed with that show when it came on where after uh, Jane Seymour dies, I think. Uh, the king, King Henry, went into a deep depression because she was like the perfect wife for him. Mm -hmm. And then she dies and he didn't even behead her. And uh, he went into in the show. And I'm pretty sure it probably happened, at least in recorded history, because the people that wrote that show wrote Elizabeth. So accuracy is something they're very passionate about. But he went into a deep, deep depression and sequestered himself alone for a week with his jester. Yes. And it was an amazing scene to watch because this guy wasn't the, hey, how you doing, you know, type jester. He was just the guy that was allowed to fuck with the king. But it, it was you. such a surreal thing, too, because that was the only time that guy has ever been in the show. It made you feel like this could be something the king is imagining in, an, in a depression insanity. I don't know. But well, this it... guy was the only person who was free and allowed to make fun of the king to the point where King Henry VIII got pissed off at him and he didn't give a shit. Yeah. And because that that's is his a job. At one point there's a story the role There's a story of, of um Elizabeth I think it was Elizabeth scolding her jester for not being sharp enough with her. Right. Because they were expected to be the one to bring the voice of the people and the voice of reason to yes. someone who can't often see reason based on solely on their position. Uh Z just pointed out to me that there is a Latin phrase, sic transit gloria mundi which is, thus passes the glory of the world, yeah. also interpreted as worldly things are fleeting. And what happened was that, that during papal coronation ceremonies from early 1400s up through the 1960s, someone would stand behind the new pope and just repeat that <laughs> to tell them that this, as all these throngs and these masses of people have come to effectively worship you, mm -hmm. understand this is not it. Like... This is great now, but this is this isn't it. Right. And that's such and a that's... human thing because if there's one thing that humans hate about other humans, it's not being able to laugh at themselves. Yeah. And I think that the the role of the jester is not only valuable but necessary. Mm -hmm. Someone has to be able to tell the truth to the king mm -hmm. and the people have to know that there is someone speaking on their behalf to do that. Yes. Well, now, of course, we don't live in a society where there is a king and he has a jester and that works out. So what we have instead are comedians. Yes. Those who stand up and in usually a humorous way. Just tell the fucking truth. Well, why was The Daily Show as successful as it was once Stewart took over? They Absolutely. took over that role. And because now you've got... He did that. Yeah. And now you've got so many other shows that are aping what The Daily Show did. Obviously, with a lot of talent. I mean, you know, John Oliver's show is his version of The Daily Show. Yes. But it's to say to everyone, hey, guys, just to let you know, this is bullshit. <laughs> And people want that. Yes, and we need it as a society, as a culture. Uh, we absolutely require that because not only do we, the the lowly masses, yes, need to feel that someone is speaking mm -hmm. for us on our behalf to the people who have to listen to them, but there have to be 
people have to listen to them. Yes. Like you and can't maybe, ignore that pressure. Maybe that's why English humor still is the way it is. Is Perhaps. because they are so steeply based in monarchy. Technically, still have it, although it's not what you would call the Henry VIII monarchy. But right. they need to make fun of the higher classes to feel that their voices are represented. And that is, it is a long tradition that that is not only expected but respected by mm -hmm. those in power. Like that is something that is very embedded into that culture. Right. So I, I love the George Carlin's. Mm -hmm. the Lewis Blacks, um, the John Stewart's mm -hmm. of the world, and we need them. And I find that though I doubt any of them would ever agree or at least admit that they agree, that that is a, a noble calling. Absolutely it is. And well, it I is think something comedians... that for those who step up to that role, is it's it's an incredibly moving and inspiring calling to actually accede to i think true comedians and maybe this is one of the other reasons that dane cook is sort of spat on by other comics is that he he you know like you said his role was to be a big stadium comic yeah. whereas it's almost like if i meet an actor who says that their sole purpose is to be famous i'm gonna kind of look cockeyed at that person because to me it's almost a disrespect of the craft Sure. And I think those kind of comics are all about the craft. And the thing I loved about somebody like Carlin or somebody like Lenny Bruce or somebody like Lewis Black is not all their jokes necessarily may make me laugh, but I guarantee a 90% of them will make me go, huh, Yep. never thought about it that way. And that's why those guys are brilliant. Yeah. I'll be honest. I've watched some Lenny Bruce routines and didn't really laugh a ton, but he said so many truthful, honest harsh things especially for the time and really gave you a new perspective on it yep y you can't not respect what the man had to say absolutely absolutely so yeah I, I i totally agree i think we we pretty much see eye to eye on comedy and who's influenced us and who we still enjoy watching okay now let me let me wrap up my little yeah go ahead world here by uh just kind of spitting out a list of comics that not everybody may oh, have yeah, heard of definitely. but that you should I would almost... like to enter Dinah Leppard's name into that, by the way. Okay. All right. So the people that you may not have heard of, but you should mm -hmm. definitely check out. These aren't in like a particular order, except potentially alphabetical. Sure. Um, Alonzo Bowden. Uh, I know Alonzo. Not He's personally. Not pers <laughs> yeah, we hang out. We kick it. Yeah, it's cool. Me and Alonzo. We're like Alonzo Bowden. He's very, very good. Um, kind of in the jester section of comics, um, but... More jokey. Um, Angela Johnson. She has one album out that I know See, of. I don't know her. She used to be a Raiders cheerleader. Oh, wow. And I think she's on some sketch comedy show like Mad TV or something like that. And she got kind of popular being on her whatever sketch comedy show it was. And I believe it was Mad TV. And then she put out a stand-up comedy album. And it's actually really good in terms of like if you want to hear women comics that aren't boring or whatever. Right. She's very cute. It's it's really pretty adorable. Obviously, Anthony Jeselnik, he's he's our jokester. He's our generation's Don Rickles. It's mm -hmm. incredible. Kind of uh, rough around the edges, so be prepared to uh, not be offended by some stuff. Are you like, telling me or the audience? Because both. you know my sensibilities. Yeah. I'm not going to give a shit. <laughs> I think that if, if anybody hasn't, everyone should probably take a listen to the greater bodies of work from Jeff Foxworthy and Bill Engvall. Yeah, you know, they're, they're again, they're kind of easy targets. Um, they've yeah, become easy targets, I think especially because they're so Southern. But there's stuff that isn't 
the stuff that everybody knows from them right. is actually really just good straight comedy. Yes, absolutely. I've never hated Foxworthy. Um, Bill Ingvall, I'm kind of lukewarm on, and that's only because personally he hasn't made me laugh as much as the other guys. And like I, I said, my how, favorite out of that group is always going to be Ron White. Yeah, and Ron White is fantastic, and he only kind of fits into that because mm-hmm. he's from the South. Like that's, Not to that's mention really the fact it. that if out of all the four of them, he seems to me to be the most brutally honest about everything. Yes. He's great, but to me, he does not really belong grouped with them, except that he's from the South. Right. Uh, Bill Ingvall, you might want to try to give him another listen, because as you get older, I think oh, yeah. his stuff becomes much more accessible. Yeah, yeah. Well, he wrote a lot of Foxworthy stuff, too, in the early days. Yes. Brad Williams. Do you know Brad yes, Williams? I know Brad Williams. Williams. Midget comic. Yes, he is. Oh, my God. I've got. A, I've actually oh, have hilarious. a story about Brad Williams. Go for it. Uh, told by Jay Moore. Okay talking about jay moore was talking about being on the bill and these are guys like okay jay moore who is very experienced and funny eddie izzard who we've already mentioned and is pretty fucking brilliant and the night opened with brad williams and after brad williams was done jay moore took the stage and said let's be honest we're all shooting for second place for the rest of the night yeah he's he is a Truly brilliant stand-up comedian. He makes me laugh all the time. I can re-listen to his albums forever. Right. Uh, Let's see. So in terms of let's go for like kind of our more youngish, mm-hmm. postmodern, uh, mid twenties to early thirties, maybe uh, a little late thirties. What are your feelings 30s. on uh, the Tosh Man? Um, I really, really like his stand-up. Yes. I really do. I haven't much cared for 2.0, and I'm kind of over this whole generation of people watching YouTube videos and making fun of them, to be totally honest. Yeah, Even though we just... do it on the bearded ones from time to time, it has become such a thing that it kind of turns me off from a TV show. It's just not my thing. I don't really like it, but I do really like his stand-up. I think he mm-hmm. has an incredible uh, eye for a, subverti- a subversive punchline mm-hmm. and a and really good And he borders on the absurd a lot yes. with his yes. takes on things. Yep. Donald Glover. Mm-hmm. Everybody likes Dung Lover. He has been on Jay Moore's podcast a couple of times and is always hysterical. His comedy album, Weirdo. I don't, uh, I've never heard it. Oh, God. You need to check it out. It's actually like it's way funnier than you would think it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very multi-talented individual. Yeah. That Donald Glover. For our postmodern, slightly cynical society, two youngish comics that I really like to recommend are Dan Cummins and Nick Thune. Uh, I've heard of Dan Cummins. I have not heard of Nick Thune. Nick Thune is kind of, if you were to take Dimitri Martin and Dan Cummins and put them together, you might have a Nick Thune. Okay. <laughs> He's musical-ish. Not like he doesn't do musical numbers. He's not like Bo Burnham or whatever. Right. But, you know, he'll have a guitar on stage I don't with hate him Bo Burnham, by the way. <laughs> no, absolutely not. He's great. And so young yeah. for being so good. Yeah. The late, great Greg Giraldo. Yes. If anyone has not listened to his comedy albums, you absolutely need to. He, and again, you want to talk brutally honest. Yes. He is He is many people's influence because he was one of the best at what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, another female comic not everybody's heard of is Jackie Cation. And I don't know her. Jackie Cation's good. She's like, uh, she's kind of like me. <laughs> okay. She's a nerd girl, but she's a comedian. Seeing a bit of an uprising in those, by the way, and I yeah. couldn't be happier. And her bit is not about, oh, how much of a nerd am I? Right. But that's an important part of the facts of her joking. Right. Well, and it's like we said, she's just talking about her life. That's exactly. what you have to do. And she's actually really, really good. 
Jesse Joyce. Most people know about Jesse Joyce, I think. But if not, oh, rings you, a bell, but I can't. You should. He writes a lot of roast oh. jokes. Okay. In turn, like for a job job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> His stand-up delivery nearly made me crash my car once. Wow. He's one of the best at just the delivery of a joke. Mm-hmm. Even if the joke itself maybe isn't like the best written joke ever, right? just his delivery is enough to sell every joke way better than even really experienced comics otherwise could tell that right. same joke. I want to make sure I don't forget any other really good ones to well, bring I've up. Well, I've got a couple of people. Really, this first person everybody knows, uh, but you want to talk about making it hard for a comedian to translate their comedy to TV and make it work. I thought Sarah Silverman's show on Comedy Central was hysterical. Jesus is Magic? No, not her not her special, but her oh. actual sitcom. Oh, oh. You're not a Sarah Silverman fan, are you? I like Sarah Silverman just fine. I did not like that show. You didn't? Oh, I did. No. And especially since it gave, like, you know, rise. Like, I never would have heard of Brian Posehn had it not been for Sarah Silverman. Really? Yeah. I didn't That's know who he was when he was on the show. Um, yeah, he's been well, this was he's years got ago. Think about how long albums. ago that show was on Comedy Central. Um, I guess. One shout out I would like to make about someone I discovered in the past year, actually, that it's unfortunately a post-mortem shout out. We talk about gimmicks and how com- comics don't like gimmicks, but if you can make it work, they will love you. If you haven't ever heard any material from Otto and George, you should check them out. Okay. He's a ventriloquist. He was a ventriloquist. Who His ventriloquist dummy was his evil conscience voice. Oh, I remember him, yes. Former junkie whose dummy constantly reminded him of what a fucking junkie he was on stage. Yes. <laughs> and that is brutally honest comedy told through the mouth of a dummy. I'm sold. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody we're leaving out? I mean, by the way, we're leaving out a ton of people. Oh, God, so many we people. We don't have 15 hours to talk. Yeah, so many. Seriously, my comedy playlist is over 5,000 tracks long. Who is the one person? That if you were dying and you had five seconds to tell the world this comedian needs to be known that you would say that you haven't said yet. Chad Daniels. Chad Daniels. Never heard of him. I I know. And I find that to be shameful because <laughs> I have a long list of people that you probably most people haven't heard. Right. Because they don't go scouring for stand-up comedy albums like I do. Right. I discovered Chad Daniels by accident for scouring through comedy albums. Because that's what I do. So <laughs> I will find someone whose humor that I like and that I know, and I will go to find their related artists. And then I will listen to their related artists and see if I like them as well. Chad Daniels was a related artist at the bottom of the list from somebody else that I like, like a Patton Oswald or something. Okay. And uh, Chad Daniels to me is like the guy that you want to be with you at 2 a.m. at a Denny's <laughs> telling the stories about your life. Like he's, he's a really pretty normal dude talking about pretty normal stuff but the right. way that he talks about those things is so hilarious like i think jesse joyce is one of the best at delivery chad daniels has him beat a hundred times over well and that to me was the strength of seinfeld when he was at his peak was just this average everyday guy who talked about average everyday things but had a take on it that nobody else had one of the the things that got me with chad daniels was a joke that was just it, it struck me as probably better than it was because of how much I related to it. But his joke is about how he lives on this river with his family and he, his wife suggested that they go out in a canoe and that they paddle upstream and float downstream. And the setup for the joke is they're doing that and she didn't bring a paddle. So he was the one doing all the paddling. <laughs> 
And so his joke is, I will murder you. And she asks, why are you whispering? He said, because sound travels over water. And that last statement makes it premeditated. <laughs> and that there is a much bigger joke to it. Obviously, I did not mm-hmm. retell it. But yeah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to start trying so to retell funny. these guys. Exactly. That's just ridiculous. But it struck me as so funny because I have done that. Right. I have been his wife. I have gone onto a canoe with people and not paddled and made them do all the work. And they yeah. wanted to kill me. Yeah. And I about died when he told that joke. That's funny. But even though it was personally relatable, it's not the funniest joke he has. Like right. the rest of his stuff is just as good as that. Sure. But it is that relatable. It's like just random events that, you know, 5% of people have probably had happen to them. Sure. But it's a different 5% of people for every single joke. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if I could make him famous just by wishing someone famous, I totally would because he deserves every bit of it. I think he is incredible. Well, and I kind of have a guy like that on my list who is reasonably well known in the comedy circles, but I think has gotten an unfair shake because of how he comes across in certain ways. I remember when they changed the Weekend Update guy on Saturday Night Live to Colin Quinn and I remember watching the Weekend Updates going I don't like this guy because he would say the smartest things, but he does not come across like a smart guy. However, if you go watch his last one man show, which ended up being a Broadway hit, but that doesn't mean that it appeals to the masses. uh, You need to see it because it's easy to sweep somebody like him under the rug because he sounds like just dumb Bronx, almost mobster type. One of the smartest people you will ever come in contact with ever. And his stint on Saturday Night Live did him such a disservice as far as showing who he really is. I recommend everyone watching his specials. I I second that recommendation. So are we done with the stand-up section of the show? Um, I I feel like I want to list out 50 more people. But yeah, if I do that, I will just end up reading off my Spotify list. So (laughs) yes, absolutely. I think that really I just want to encourage more people to seek out stand-up yes. comedy Let to listen to. Let these comics that we have suggested be your YouTube rabbit hole to finding others. If you have any subscription to any music service, Spotify, Pandora, Rhapsody, whatever, go and look for these people and the people who are related to them in terms of their artistry style. And just listen until you find somebody you like. Check out local improv clubs and go see comics in person. It is really one of the best entertainment time per dollar, especially if you're doing it for free on a Mm -hmm. radio show or whatever, that you can spend. And stand-up comedy is something that can appeal to literally everyone. Well, and a shout-out to the shows I mentioned earlier. The shows that are still around that aren't the normal bullshit terrestrial radio shows that really are there to celebrate stand-up comics. Because how many of these comics I would have never heard of had it not been for Bob and Tom, Kevin and Bean, Opie and Anthony. So support those shows because they support real comics. Sure. I mean, that's a great platform for those guys to just get on there and not just be jokey, stocky, sticky, whatever, but just be themselves and be funny and make you go, I like this guy. I want to see what he's like on stage. I also would would like to encourage anybody who is so inclined to – I don't know, hit me up, email or Twitter or whatever. If you think you know of a stand-up comedian that I oh, don't absolutely. know, please well, tell me. And, and that's Greenville not me. Greenville becoming quite the place for comedians. We've had a lot of people come through that are really good. Um, in the female comic arena, I'm thinking we had Lace Larrabee come through lately. And from what I heard, she was great. You know, there's there's always people underneath the radar 
that you can let the world know about, especially yes. with the internet these days. If you have somebody you're passionate about, let the world fucking know because these people deserve to be able to make a living doing what they're doing. Absolutely. And uh, more personally, I want to hear more stand-up comedy. Yeah, yeah. So, right, like, course. tell me if you think you know somebody I don't know. This is maybe a challenge given that I have, you know, nine days worth of stand-up comedy at right. my fingertips. But really, s send me the name because I want to hear new comedy all the time. Absolutely. Well, now we move on to uh, what will be the shorter section of this three-hour podcast. Right. Um, we're going to talk about improv a little bit. I have a unique take on it because I've been doing improv for five, six years now. Um, I've been in two improv groups, Laughing Stock and Distracted Globe. Unfortunately, the Distracted Globe improv is a little bit defunct at the moment, but could be coming back someday. Laughing Stock is still growing pretty strong, and I've been very lucky to be a part of both. And Laughing Stock is short form improv, right? Uh, not as much as we used to be. We are starting to work some more long form type stuff into our set simply because it's different. Okay, let me let me let me set it up. Short form improv is the one that everybody knows, which is like whose line is whose it line anyway? Is anyway? Right. It's the setup from the audience. You get a word in a place or an emotion in a situation, right. and you and you make them do that, and it's really quick. Right. This is actually something that like I love short form, both doing and participating in mm -hmm. from the audience. My question, and I have one, is what I don't understand long form improv. Oh, okay. I don't know that I've ever seen long form improv, and I've read about it, and I don't think I get well, the point. Sure. When we talk about short form, you talk about something like the dating game, which everyone's seen on Whose Line Is It Anyway. It's a game. It has a structure. You're given everything you need by the audience. So all you're creating are jokes based on what you've gotten. If you are given, you know, in the dating game, you're a bachelor and you're given something by the audience and someone is a bachelorette or a bachelor if you've got, you know, more women on the on the group or gay men, whatever. And uh, they have to guess what the audience gave you through clues. And the main point of a dating game game is to just be as jokey as possible with the suggestions that you get. You're not creating a scene. You're not creating a world. Right. You're it's just like being... charades with comedy. Yes. You're just being okay. jokey. And right. it's not that that doesn't take a skill. It absolutely does. But most of the time with short form improv, you're not telling a story. Right. Even if you're doing an open scene. There's this game we love to play called In a, with a, in a Blank with a Blank while blanking. Okay. Where it's just a scene-based game where you get what are we in from the audience? What do we have from the audience? And what are we doing from the audience? Right. You know, you're in a canoe with a penguin while twerking. So yes. you have to make a scene out of that. But you're still not really telling a story. You're just right. using all the Right, and it's short. It's meant to be over in giving. a couple minutes. We played a game. One of our favorite long-form games is called Small Town. And all you get from the audience are the names and occupations for your characters. You then create the story out of that and let the story go until you've got a beginning, middle, and an end where all these characters are connected. If you're doing so, a short form scene, the main thing is the jokes. Yes. Make people laugh as much as possible. If somebody comes up with a great joke that you don't think the scene's going to get any better, you end it there. With long form, the object is to tell a story. Is it still supposed to be funny? Uh, it can be, or it can be. A lot of times it ends up being really successful, even to an audience, if you just tell a really cool, coherent story. But yeah, there should be humor in there. Most of the time we've done long form, we try to make it funny, but it's funny based on the characters that we're creating and the story that we're creating at the time. And it doesn't end until we feel like we found the end of the story. 
So it's just simply much more story driven, I think. You know, when we get that small town game, it's literally just, okay, where's the story starting? These two characters are talking, the other two characters are off stage, and then you take something that that person said, and then you go to another part of town, and you have to stay as these characters in these occupations. You can't switch around. And it's also linear, so you can't go back in time or whatever. And you're just trying to connect all these characters in some way where everyone's on the same page, knows where the story is going, and someone at some point will hopefully find this beautiful, perfect ending to the story. And in the in between all that, you found some really funny things based on those characters. My God, from a performer standpoint, that sounds so intimidating. <laughs> and from a viewer standpoint, that sounds so risky mm -hmm. from an entertainment standpoint. But that's kind of the point, I think, of improv. Uh, that's the, one of the things that bothers me the most about improv is someone coming to see a show of ours and it might not be a good night for us and then walking out and saying, well, I'm not going to come back again because it sucked. And you want to go, well, it might. It's always a high wire act. That's the point. And I think that uh, I think improv more than like short form, at least, because, again, I don't believe I've ever actually seen a long form improv mm -hmm. show, but short form anyway, which I've been on both sides of sure. many times. More in the audience than on stage, but still. I love short-form improv. It's great. It is it is always entertaining to me. It's sort of out of vogue but it at this is, point. It is, and that's sad. But it is so dependent on your audience. Oh, absolutely. It is like it is 95% dependent on the audience because if they're giving you shitty suggestions right. or if they're tr they're actively trying to ruin it for themselves oh, and, and, they and you and they can it is a nightmare. But the great thing about improv is that you can it's not like a play where you have to keep the reality up. Yeah. You can completely call people out that are trying to fuck you over. Yes. But also, you know, with short form there's a key to it sometimes. We definitely in rehearsals, and it's always funny when I say I got to go to improv rehearsal, people are like, but it's improv. Oh, you have to. Well, yeah, absolutely you have to. Oh, my God. But a lot of people don't get that. But when we do a rehearsal, when we do a rehearsal, a lot of it is when we do short form rehearsal to figure out sort of the tricks of the games. It doesn't yes. mean they're going to work. It just means that, okay, this is the best chance this game has to working if we play it like this. Right. But, you know, a lot of people that teach improv love to say, here are the rules. Oh, and the main rule, there are no rules. Because there are things you should do in improv. And there yeah. are rules that if you break 90% of the time, it will be a disaster. But there's always that 10% where for some reason you break it and it goes great. Yeah, like the one that I that was stressed most strongly is to not shut it down. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. Never shut always it down. Accept. Except always accept. sometimes it's better to shut it down. Like sometimes there is. is There is the one in 10 times when right. shutting it down is the funny part. Right. It is what makes the scene work. But right. that's so rare that you have to teach against it. Like you... You have to not ever do that on purpose. Right. One thing that I've found that I do a lot is to sort of acknowledge when something is a little on the ridiculous side in character. Yeah. Um, which you really shouldn't do all that often. You just have to go with the reality of the situation. But every once in a while, it's funny to acknowledge how ridiculous the situation is. Um, you know, and say it in a way that a normal person would not say it. <laughs> Well, I mean, every, almost everyone is familiar with Whose Line Is It Anyway at this mm -hmm. point. Either the original British version or the m middling American <laughs> version with Drew Carey or the new one uh, with Aisha Tyler. Taylor. Right. Aisha. Aisha Tyler. Tyler. Love her. Uh, which took a minute to get on its feet. 
But, well, they all had Ryan Styles, so they all and Colin Quinn or excuse yeah. me, Colin Mockery. So they all Colin had Mockery. Chop. Yes, and I have to say, Ryan Styles and Colin Mockery were also on the original British version. They were. Yes, that's how they got into the American version. Right, and you know, so the beauty of short form is going for the laughs. The beauty of long form is telling a funny story. Okay, those are the biggest differences. And, you know, we've had it work and we've had it not work. We've had the long form just flail all over the place. But it also depends on it, – it's just it's a lot like comedy. And we talk about the pure comedy clubs or the comedy clubs with the mic and the red curtain and the brick walls. And the same applies to improv. Yes. The worst improv times we've had are when the situation just doesn't fit what we're doing. Usually outdoors is a disaster. Oh, God, yeah. And it's like because you have to have an audience, A, who is there to want to see you yes. and ready to laugh, and you can't just show up somewhere and go, we're going to do improv, and have people go, oh, yay. Most of the time it's, I'm eating lunch. Go away. Yeah. Um, corporate things, not the best uh, setting. Um, you can't blame it all on the audience. You can't blame it all on the setting. You've got to do the best with what you have. Yes. But reg you always have a better shot in a, in a room filled with people who are there to have a good time. Yes. And not distract you. When we have been heckled, we have, you know, some of the scarier things are when you have games that depend on audience participation and the audience member just falls apart. One of my yeah. favorite games we play is a game called Hesitation, where the basic point of the game is you get two audience members up who are outside of the scene, but every once in a while you point to them to fill in the blank for you. Okay. And one of three things either happens. They freak out and say nothing. They say something that is completely appropriate for what you're asking for, or they do what you want them to do and say freak out funny. and say something that's completely inappropriate for what you're asking <laughs> for. Okay. I ate my soup with a point to the audience member, Duck. Well, you have to use it, so you got to justify it, which is fun. I ate my soup with a spoon. Well, okay. Uh, Eating yeah. my soup with a spoon. I ate my soup with a... Uh, uh. You can make a joke out of that once. Yeah. It kills the game if it happens all the time, and we have had that happen as well. But that's the risk you take, and that's why improv is fun, even when you bomb. Now, it took me yeah, a for while the performers, to the point yes. where I was okay with bombing. <laughs> Like there I think were times bombing in improv would be better than bombing as a stand-up comedian. Oh, Maybe sure. because you're sharing that bombing with other people. Well, and you can I always say when you bomb in improv, you can always say, "Well, that's bound to happen because we're thinking of stuff on the spot." When you bomb as a comedian, you're that's... always like, "Well, I wrote this material, I poured yeah. over this material, and I performed this material, and it bombed. They yeah. hate me." You know, there's always that excuse with improv that where, you know, the chance you're taking is it might bomb because you're thinking it up on the spot. The chance you take with with stand up is oh, bombing is literally a personal rejection. Yes, they don't you. like me. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> They're judging me. Absolutely. It is. So, you know, to me, improv is fun. And it took me a long time to get to the point where if we have a bad show, I didn't walk off stage and go, you guys go to the party. I'm going to go commit suicide. Yeah. And I've gotten to that point now, thankfully, after, what, six years? And um, it still sucks when we bomb, but I can always go, well, that's the nature of the beast. Well, and seriously, I mean, sometimes I'm sure that it's like it was an off night for the performers and they just didn't pull it out. But mm -hmm. honestly, 95% of that is going to be on the audience. Well, you know. And they have to both give you good stuff to work with and, like, reciprocate with their energy. Like We perform in two places, mainly. A 50-person room and the backup coffee underground. Mm -hmm. Or the Green Little Theater when they do their studio show. Shows. 
which the studio yes. shows are a night of one acts and then followed by an intermission, followed by laughing stock. When we do a show at the Greenville Little Theater, there's like 300 people who were there to support their friends or see funny plays and are ready to laugh and have a good time. Yeah. When we do shows at Coffee Underground, it's 50-50. You're either going to get a full room of people ready to laugh or five people who are just curious. And that makes it a lot harder sometimes. <laughs> I bet. But it's also a great learning tool. I would recommend anyone who wants to do acting at all to do improv, even if it doesn't mean that you're doing it for entertainment's sake or to be funny. Just do it. Take a it class. It teaches a lot of great skills. And oh, almost gosh. every city or town has an improv club of some sort. Oh, yeah. And will have someone teaching stand-up comedy Absolutely. classes or improv classes. And you can go do that. And this is a good way to close the episode, I think. Can comedy be taught? <sighs> yes and no. Right. Like Timing can be taught. Structure can be taught. I think that those things can be taught in the way that English lit can be taught and right. math can be taught. You can teach people the facts, but it is still up to the individual to be able to take those facts and mm -hmm. create something with them. But I also think there are things that are just intangible. Perspective cannot be taught. Right. Um, um, honesty can't be taught. Right. It takes a lot for comedians to get up and say, I'm going to show you the bare bones, warts and all aspects of my life for you to laugh at. Yeah. And like that's that what a lot of the best ones do. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm in agreement that technical things can be taught. Funny can't be taught. So I think that if taught. you're... If you're a person who is funny and people are always like, oh, you should be a comedian. No, you shouldn't. Like if someone tells you that, they're oh my lying. God. I told a story on the Bearded Ones once. This is a perfect example of that. There was this woman that used to go out for smoke breaks where I worked who was one of those people that love to tell you how crazy they are. And I have learned that anytime somebody tells you that I'm just so crazy, <laughs> they're you not. need to avoid them. Oh, that's something I would do because I'm crazy. And one day she decided to perform, quote unquote, for someone, for a group of people smoking at the table. And she literally did, and this is a white, like 60-year-old woman, she literally did the white people walk like this, blah, 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 blah. Black oh, people walk like God. this. Me, 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 me. Everybody at the table except for me busted out laughing, and one of them said, you need to be a comedian. It took every ounce of strength I said not to stand up and go, you so do not need to be a comedian. But I almost yeah. wanted her to try with that bit. <laughs> and not in a scenario where all her friends were going to be there to support her. Yeah, but, but in front of an audience. Go to a club in New York or L.A. and do that bit and see if anybody gives a shit about you after it's done. Oh, God. But you see so, people do that all the time. You can be funny in social – Chris Rock had a great – I think it was Chris Rock that was talking about, you know, once you get done in the club, the competition becomes who's the funniest guy in the parking lot. Yeah. You can be socially funny and have it be different than being funny on stage. Absolutely. Like, I'm not funny. <laughs> I just can't be funny. I don't know what it is. But I am witty. I'm quick. Yeah, but so that's I a discussion could, for another time. That I mean, counts. I can come up with like a an off-the-cuff quick response that is funny in the moment, <laughs> given the moment that we're in. What I can't do is write a fucking joke. Right. And I couldn't retell that moment in a way that would make it funny later. Right. So I'm 
I could never be a comic. That's just ridiculous. I'm not funny. But I know people who are just like you. I have a friend named Brad who's this way. Just they're just funny people. Well, I have they're done just... stand up like four or I five know. times, but I would never consider myself a comedian right. because it is not something that I have poured hours and hours of material into. I came up with an OK five minutes. That's the best thing I could ever say. And that's more than I could ever do. <laughs> and let and... me tell you, after years of doing theater and improv and a lot of other things, the first time I did stand up in front of an audience for a laughing stock show, which I'll be honest, was pretty friendly, was the most afraid I've been yeah. in years. Yeah, I bet. Like imp short form improv was fine for me because, again, that relies on quick wit. Yes. It's less about writing. And, and again, like, you know, long form terrifies me the way you've described it yeah. because that's writing. I don't do that. Like, that's... well, and, you know, the other thing, too, is and I'm not saying anything against improvisers. I think improvisers are great and I love them all. And I am one. But there is always that safety net of saying if something doesn't work well, that's sort of the nature of it. It's all off the top of our heads. Yeah. That is a safety net. Yes. That just is. You can always go back to that excuse. So I think in a way improv is easier because you always have that to go to fall back on. It's like, well, you didn't see us at our best. You know, it's it's just the nature of the beast. Right. Whereas stand up. Or the audience was shitty and they didn't give right. us anything to work with. And, you know, plenty of comics have used the audience's shitty excuse. But also if you have, you know, James Sipley was on our podcast once and he said it best. When you get enough experience under your belt. If you make audiences laugh nine out of ten times, one out of ten they don't, it's safe to blame the audience then. Sure. If they never laugh, then the whole, well, I had a bad audience excuse really falls short, and you just have yes. to accept the fact that maybe you're just not very good. Just not funny. Yep, that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. You haven't tried. Yeah, not going to at all. But I think that for people who have like an innate just ability to kind of craft a scenario of joke that you can be taught, if you're one of those people, you can be taught the mechanics of standing up to tell comedy. Right. But you have to have the initial, the way that you see the world that, you know, apologizes for the convenience of an escalator becoming stairs. Right. You have to have the material. That has to be something that you can see, and I don't have that. But if you do, go visit someone who is giving a seminar or teaching classes on stand-up comedy or improv and learn from them, and you absolutely could go to an open mic and just kill. Maybe, yeah. But also realize, too, that a lot of comedians say they didn't really find their voice until they were doing it for at least five years. Oh, yeah. And, you know, even with that Jim Norton story I told earlier where they were fucking mocking one of his first appearances. Appearances. The audience was laughing. Sure. But there's a difference between getting a laugh, eliciting a laugh, and earning one. Yes, absolutely. And I'm not saying he wasn't funny. He was, but he wasn't the comedian he is now. Sure. And no one is ever going to start out being the comedian they will mm -hmm. end up being. Absolutely not. Um, I would also like to recommend to anyone out there who's interested, if you can find any episodes of Paul Provenza's The Green Room or Talking Funny on HBO. If yes. If you have any interest in comedy whatsoever, check those out. Comedian. The documentary is great. Um, what was the one? The Aristocrats is definitely a, a documentary you want to check out if oh, you have yeah. any interest in comedy at all. As a comedy nerd, yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, we have gone for like three hours. Oh, Jesus. Um, there's going to be some creative editing, I'm sure. Thank you for absolutely. volunteering to do that. No problem. But this has been a real a lot of fun. Um, probably one of the podcasts we've agreed on things the most. Probably. I think we have similar sensibilities with comedy. And you being more of a comedy narrative actually gave me a couple of names to look up. Yay. 
and I have plenty more if later you want them. We can, hey, if the zombies episode proved anything, we can come back to a topic. That's true. So, yeah, like she said, email the lady. Get some, get, tell people, tell us people you think we should look up and let her respond to you with some people she thinks that are deserve to be heard more. <gasps> we can share. Yes. So, totally check me out. Uh, running Twitter, we're at lucky underscore 10K and on Gmail. Lucky 10,000, all spelled out, lucky10,000 at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, this has been a lot of fun. We hope you have enjoyed it, and I hope you got lucky tonight. Good night, nerds. Thank you for being a part of the Lucky 10,000 with your hosts, Evan and Carissa. Email us at lucky10,000 at gmail.com. Find Lucky 10,000 on Twitter at lucky underscore 10k. And, visit our podcast network site, at beardofpodsnetwork.com.